Hello, you've called the official feedback line of philosophy can ruin your life. Dialectical in the streets, dialectical between the sheets, or whatever the fuck. Um, how can I help you? Uh, no, 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 no. There, there aren't going to be any more episodes. He's dead. No, like, not wanking. The other side of wanking. Actual dead. Uh, probably. No. No, not just in a uh, we-should-all-learn-to-see-the-world-under-the-auspices-of-extinction sort of way. The illusory world of representation has folded back into the eternal drumbeat of the impersonal will. He's lamented his human form, like unto the proverbial caribou. He now joins Cherubim in front of the empty throne. Yeah. No, really. Why would I lie? I don't care enough to lie. No. Beaten to death by Bordeauxians back in the live-action academic role-playing Bushdorf in 17. Brains splattered all over the wall like microwaved brie dripped in Ribena. Yep, it went down like a seminar on tips for education value propositions for early career researchers. I can still hear the machine gun fire. Feel the shrapnel in my groin. I'm still there when I close my eyes, man. The jungle, the heat, the big fucking panel sessions on innovation and intersectionality in everyday life. It was D-Day, man. It was our D-Day. It was our Saigon. It was the walls of fucking Ilium. Grant applications hurled up in the air, falling around everything like rom-com snow. Departmental meetings. You could smell the object-orientated philosophy, man. Goddamn Laturians with bazookas. Welbeck stumbling in to ask whether it was okay if he could have sex with something. I mean, some people tried to get out. Slovenians fired off a few mathemes, open bracket, as if staring into the middle distance, close bracket, but, but it was too late. Poor fuckers. Only the managerial cultural studies types were left, and they're all departmental heads now. Do you remember the para-rationalist debate? Intelligence and spirit? Larowell? Shitty hors d'oeuvres? Not enough wine? Yeah, it's just a bathtub full of chip packets, D&D dice... Middle-aged self-pity now. I miss the little tiger. Well, not really. He was kind of a dick, wasn't he? Yeah, I'll tell him. No, not really. I'm just going to hang up and get high now. James! James, I'm back! Rose time machine worked. It's all fine. We made it to the heart of the dialectic. What? Did you go somewhere? I mean, yeah. Wait. What year is this? Um, 2019. Oh, thank God. I was worried that the early 90s wouldn't be considered culturally relevant anymore. Do you still have my MC Hammer single? Aha, uh-huh, yes. We've been using it as a coaster. Cool. So, 2019. Right. Thanks to all of those time travel adventures... We've got renewable energies, space travel, full communism, and we've stopped the hypertrophy of the imaginary that allows for the incursion of management and marketing into the depths of the transcendental unconscious. We've saved humanity. Sort of. And by sort of, you mean... Not really. Right. Well, we must have put a few things, right? Like... Hey, when I was back there, I told Mark Zuckerberg about René Girard's theory of mimesis. I imagine that made him really rethink his desire to invent... You're an idiot. It's just called Facebook now. 
God damn it! So it was all for nothing. Suppose we could try again, but I don't know. I really fucking hate the late capitalist scene. All that high-speed derivative trading, the capitalist realism, the sanctimony. That thing just ain't told me about the geological strata of chicken bones. All of those things really fuck with the flux capacitors. So... Nothing's changed, that's what you're saying. We're still facing imminent extinction, fascism, unchecked neoliberal nihilism, and the desert of managerial hegemony annexing the stars? Yep, afraid so. Oh, well, do we still have the radio show, at least? Uh, it's called a podcast now. I'll explain once you know what an influencer is. Jesus. But, like... I, I, this is fucked, but, I, like, people are still unhappy, right? Oh, yeah. Pretty much every non-psychopath is a petri dish of thinly disguised snarl of crippling neuroses and wounded narcissism buffeted from shock to shock like Benjamin. Feeling posthumous before their 30s, anxious, despairing, broken, impotent, addicted to something, snow crash or something, I don't know, which they can't even name, let alone procure, desperately craving affection with the searing blades of endless crisis cutting into their ensouled flesh like those pins in that dude's head in that film. Okay, so status quo, eh? But you're saying, thank God, at least there's still an opportunity to make it worse for people. I suppose. Praise be. All right. James, get me some laudanum. Just put opium in the wine. And a copy of The Science of Logic and a fucking microphone. Make sure it isn't a good one. We need to make the audio extra shitty. I'm pretty sure you can do that yourself, dickhead. Yeah, all right. I shall. Let's do this. Um, wait. How exactly are we making people less happy in this universe? Uh, you run a philosophy podcast. Great. Thank God. Do I let people who are smarter and more articulate than me come on the show and say intelligent things? Yeah, although you mostly interrupt them and kind of stammer out disconnected subordinate clauses. Sounds like me. Excellent. Hey man, this could be the beginning of a beautiful... What in the name of Ashtaroth is that? Oh, you know, it's a... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second season of Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life, the only philosophy podcast that takes your existence as an edifice that it demands should be destroyed. I'm Brian Cook. With me in the studio today is Emma Black. Uh, Emma uh, fairly recently completed her master's thesis at the University of Queensland, um, a thesis called Against, uh, After Missology. Um, Emma, thank you. Thank you for uh, coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. Welcome, Emma. Emma, you know what the first question uh, that I'm going to ask you is? Emma, how did philosophy ruin your life? <laughs> yes, I do. I did. I was aware that this was the question. And I have been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, exactly how to respond. Um I don't know, so a few things, I guess. 
like most people, philosophy or the decision to pursue philosophy has made me fairly unemployable (laughs) and I guess like highly unintelligible to the general populace of sane human beings. Yeah. So in, yeah, so that would be the quick answer, I guess. Um, And, but the longer answer is to kind of, I guess, do what philosophers want to do and critique some of the implicate, like what's implied in the question. Yes. Um, So... I'm a follower of your podcast and I'm really sympathetic to the kind of anti-Elaine de Baton sentiment of sure. philosophy is no consolation for life. Yeah. Um, it changes everything and I think its effects are largely irreversible. <laughs> like when, Once you get into it, like there's no going back to Alas, sort yes. of blissful ignorance no. or anything like that. Um, but... I'm going to say something fairly embarrassing, probably, and that's that in many ways philosophy ruined my life, but in many ways it kind of saved my life as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. And if not, if it didn't save my life, it, it definitely improved it. In, in many ways and I'm really thankful for having discovered it in the way that I did um, so I don't know I grew up in regional Queensland mm-hmm. I didn't even know what the word philosophy meant no. until I went to university I was a couple of years into university um, but when I found it I mean I just remember finally feeling like I had tools and and concepts to make sense of my experience yes like and a lot of it a lot of its darker elements I guess sort of it shone a light and and um yeah things like understanding I guess the weird ways in which sexual discrimination works and class racism and colonialism Mm -hmm. and all of these things so Philosophy helped me make sense of my life. Yes. And, and yeah, so I'm subverting the question in a way because I, as much as I understand the turmoil that each of us faces, you know, in, in undertaking philosophy and deciding to become a philosopher, I don't want to be neg on philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) I also, I'm incredibly, I feel incredibly privileged and thankful and grateful to sort of have it be a part of my life so that's my very very corny (laughs) answer to the question no it's 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 not corny at all and in some ways it it's i mean first of all not to talk about my self in any great detail um god forbid that this should turn into a an auto interview but in some (laughs) ways i would answer very similarly if i were asked that question and imagine that people would but that when we say something like, which I think, or you just said it explicitly, but if if you and me would both say that philosophy had in some sense saved our lives, I feel that this nonetheless involves a change in the meaning of the term one's life, right? Like the thing thing that is saved and the thing that is ruined are not necessarily in all aspects the same thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, And yeah, that's, that's always been part of the, Idea. But let's let's talk about that saving 
element a little bit. Mm, so you said, okay. you know, one thing, there are categories for understanding uh, maybe forms of oppression and injustice that you'd already observed in the world and maybe mm. in your immediate milieu. You mentioned apropos of class and um, racism and sexism mm. and so forth. Um, uh, but I suspect, and not to trivialize such things, but the, but it was more than that as well. When you say that it saved your life, allowed you to make sense of more things, it was mm. not just, I suppose, the ability to give names to those kinds of injustices? Mm. No, absolutely not. But I mean, I think that the process of naming, the process yeah. of being able to sort of have a, a concept and use it as a tool in order to kind of better understand your experience of the world yeah. is precisely what allows you to then transform that experience. And that's the, the key thing. So, yeah, I don't know. I often think about uh, what kind of life I would have if I hadn't discovered philosophy. Like, right. perhaps I'd be an, a very well-paid corporate lawyer. Per perhaps I would live in regional Queensland and have three children. Yes. I don't know. But yes. And and it's I definitely like think the life I lead now, which I won't go into detail about, is has been made possible through my engagement with philosophy and the other people I met through that, yeah. who were also engaging with philosophy in their own ways, and um, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess is that is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I suppose yeah. so. I, I I mean, I'm interested that you mention. Uh, concepts like I think this is it would be a good lead-in into your <laughs> your actual philosophical work into your your master's thesis but yeah it seems significant to me that you didn't say it's not just the ability to name something but also to have a concept of mm. it and that that I think is the sort of thing that might make someone attracted to philosophy as opposed to other disciplines, especially other disciplines that also speak of injustice and forms of oppression and so mm. forth. I think, I think the term concept is a significant one for you. Yeah, absolutely. Emma, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, it brings me to the, to the question of, of your work and your specific interest in philosophy. So your thesis is called um, after mythology, okay, and mythology, uh, the hatred of reason, I suppose, you could, yeah, I mean, the, the hatred of the logos, but I think you, that arguably could sound too mystificatory in mm. the wrong context, uh, mm -hmm. I respect for your taste, but the hatred, the hatred of reason, and at, at the at conclusion of your thesis, you, you quote um, Plato's Phaedrus, mm. where he says, um, you know, let us, uh, of all things avoid one disaster and that is the disaster of becoming misologist mm. or misologues and I suppose yeah I, I'd like to ask you a bit about before we get into the thesis itself the the genesis of this thesis how did misology become a problem that you wanted to address it's interesting that you say genesis because in many ways it was the conclu conclusion like I, I didn't start out uh -huh. very with a clear conception of wanting to sort of take down this thing called mythology. Right, right. And it that was a term sense. that I came to late in in writing the thesis that I thought just really captured, I guess, a sense of what I had 
retrospectively, it helped me make sense of what I had been trying to do, mm -hmm. which I think in many ways was to understand the reasons why uh, certain, mm, let me just think for a moment. hard to, to say things without like getting into hot water. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I think at first I was, I was really just interested in, the project itself was an attempt to kind of survey this thing that I had encountered which just completely confused me in many ways, but sort of, I love encountering confusing things. Yes. Like, like I just want to understand them. But yeah, it was my encounter with this thing called speculative realism. Yes. Which, you know, in many ways is, is has been pronounced dead these days. But for me, uh, originally I just wanted to do a survey of, I guess, the major figures in this so-called movement, right? Um, and the ways in which they, the ways in which they invited us to reflect on the history of philosophy in yes. a, in new ways, in yes. different ways to, I guess, like the orthodoxy of twentieth-century readings, late twentieth-century readings of the major historical figures of philosophy that I had been mm. trained in, that I'd been taught, you know, in my degree. So I was interested in what was unsaid. Yeah, and I was interested in reading, rereading these figures from a new point of view. And what came out of that process, I think, was uh, a greater understanding of. Oh, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm trying to sum up the whole thing. Um, mythology. Let's let's like just redirect for a bit. Okay, sure. Redirect that question. What was the original question again? Um, I, <laughs> I I asked you about the genesis of the thesis, ah, yeah, and then yeah. you said actually it wasn't the genesis. Yes. Um, that in fact um, you didn't start with the problem of mythology. You started with wanting to make sense of this thing called speculative realism. Yeah. And I was going to. I don't know if this is helpful, but step back and say, w what if I were to ask, coming back to the question of Genesis, we can, James, we can edit <laughs> this to sort this, <laughs> yeah. but, um, to, to, uh, but I was going to ask you something like, where were you intellectually at the time you encountered the speculative, oh, okay. the, the realism yeah. thesis, before we get into what effects that it had on you and then yeah. the problems that... I think that would really help me actually yeah. explain what I'm trying yeah. to so explain. Let's, let's, go, let's go back a bit and we can, we can cut some yeah. of this section, but the previous section, but, but okay. It'll so work you're, well, you're, you're from the... Yeah. You're from... Um, uh, rural Queensland, you end yeah. up at university, you don't know what this thing called philosophy is, yeah. you end up studying philosophy um, in a lot of accounts I've heard from uh, various uh, people on this podcast, but maybe a lot of our mutual friends and acquaintances, this is certainly true of myself, we get this, this sort of 
um, story that maps onto, I think, the Lacanian distinction between demand and desire, mm. that, that people go to university with vague demands that maybe they want a degree or they want to meet people or they want to not get a job just yet or <laughs> yeah. that was certainly a big thing for, for me at the <laughs> time right and then you encounter philosophy and, and it's never been the object of any kind of demand because you don't know what the hell it is yeah right? like you haven't heard of philosophers or wanting to be one I no. remember seeing I was it's 18 aspiration. yeah I, I, they, when I was 18 I was in a philosophy class they brought out and I, I did philosophy because I thought it was one of the most frivolous things that I could <laughs> I could do in a sort of annoy your parents kind of yeah. a way like be irresponsible and they brought out these postgrads and they said oh they said some platitudes about why they love philosophy and I thought Imagine being as old as 26 and still be hanging around at university yeah. doing this thing. How amazingly pathetic, I yeah. thought to myself. Really? Surely we would be dead rock stars or something yeah, ridiculous yeah, 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 by yeah. then. But, but anyway, <laughs> then something insists, and I, whether people have come at it through, through cinema or through politics mm. or whatever, something makes them come back to these particular thinkers or sets of ideas mm. and there was a set of thinkers or ideas that grabbed you that sparked this this desire beyond demand what what yeah, was absolutely. that what was the first encounter for you uh, the first important encounter well yeah i i started out at uni as a as a law student actually yeah right because that's what everyone sort of from my you know middle class family right. should do and I'd seen a few legal dramas and thought, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. um, but I took an elective and I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have gone to one of the few philosophy departments in the country, if not the world, that's, uh, you know, at least 50% of the professors are female. Yeah. A lot of the syllabus for most of the courses is continental. Yeah. So uh, the first elective I took was called, I remember the name, Philosophy of Sexuality and the Self. Right. And in in a, a first year subject. It was a second year subject. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, was, I just was quite ambitious and I was sure. like, I want to, I was curious. Uh, and so that moved from, I guess, the platonic dialogues on love, yeah. the Phaedrus and the Symposium, Symposium yeah. through to French existentialism. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And I just remember sitting, I think, in a lecture on Sartre one day and, and thinking, this is it. Like, yeah. this, this is yeah. what I've always wanted to do. I yeah. just didn't know what it was. And, and here I am. And yeah, the rest of, is history. This, this is a moment yeah. of the indistinction between the salvific and ruinous moment, right? Yeah, it's like your life absolutely. is saved, but isn't the same thing that yeah, it was it's a prior to that. Yeah, completely different life. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It definitely. Yeah. Okay, so and I can imagine. I mean, that sounds incredibly exciting. You're right about. I mean, the University of what the way you describe the program at the University of Queensland is, as far as I know, unprecedented. Certainly yeah. in this country, I, d I don't think there's anything analogous to that. No. So yeah, you're taken by these ideas. You're um, You've, you've had the encounter that leads. You probably heard me talk to uh, John uh, Roth on this podcast, and I know he's, he's very fond. I think we mentioned it in the discussion of uh, this line from Deleuze's Proust book where he says, you know, you have to... The philosopher responds to problems the way a 
jealous lover does to signs of their beloved's potential betrayal, right? Yeah. That, that it, it's not of uh, an academic or detached interest, right? Mm. So something brings about, like, you encounter Sartre, you get this non-detached interest in the sound of things, like existentialist questions, first of all? Yeah, also I guess so, yeah. yeah. It was existentialism in French post-structuralism. Yeah. Um, which I just found like incredibly engaging at the time, yeah. and and you know that that lasted a few years and then I moved on. Um, but it was interesting, I guess, when you asked me about why, just to return to the question of mythology and, yeah. and like fill in this narrative. I suppose most of my undergraduate and I was and my sort of honors year, and I'm incredibly fortunate for this. I realize was I guess. I was really very well trained in French theory and post-structuralist mm. feminism, um, in in continental figures that sort of made those movements possible, like Heidegger and Nietzsche, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in in all of this kind of stuff. And it was only sort of later on, as I kept going, that I started questioning some of the presuppositions, yes. I guess, behind that. And and it was. I think the main thing for me was what these philosophers proclaimed to be fighting against themselves, the orthodoxy of, I guess, like a, I don't know, Kantian intellectualism and Cartesian kind of right. uh, individualist egotism and all of these... Well, logocentrism? Yeah, this logocentrism, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. logocentrism. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. Yeah, a lot of these... I guess a lot of these ideas of the big bad thing mm, that we mm, were mm, fighting against no longer seemed appropriate to me. I felt like history was shifting and that there were new problems and new orthodoxies that needed to be criticized in new ways. And that it was around that time that I encountered speculative realism and I thought maybe mm. this is a way to kind of um, I don't know, get a new critical lens on what's happening and respond to a contemporary moment. And yeah, I guess see a lot of the things that I'd been taught at university were unorthodox as somehow having become orthodox. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. I understand that and I'm very um, sympathetic to it. I, I wanna ask you about um, how and it might be difficult to reconstruct this, but what you were thinking, again, before we get to speculative realism, but how that realization dawned. So mm. uh, j just as an example, but I don't want to um, put words in your mouth, but I can, I can definitely see, uh, I don't want to reduce Derrida and Sixu and, and Irigray and whatever to this kind of position, but I, I, I recall uh, myself a kind of encounter with what I suppose is uh, a little glibly called postmodernist thought mm. having um, and, and that word is, is stupid and it homogenizes things that shouldn't be homogenized and so forth but it, I think it is while it is an inaccurate word for describing um, say Derrida's work mm. um, it, it does speak to a kind of orthodoxy in the uh, sort of cultural studies philosophy academy that I think is something, that I might try and summarize something like this, that, that 
norms are a problem and mm. categories and yeah. and the and big bad like enlightenment reason and yeah. so forth judgment and judgment yeah. and therefore anything uh, and this is postmodernism not reducible to what any of these thinkers say but as a general sort of vibe or ethos that uh, moving beyond categories and blurring boundaries mm -hmm. and vagueness and so forth, that this is yeah. somehow emancipatory, right? Yeah, and, and absolutely. It's this that you got disillusioned with. Absolutely. Y yeah. Yes. Am I, am I right to say it's, I mean, one of the things is I think it's, it's hard to look at the world of late capitalism and, and say, yeah, it's all of those strict boundaries around rationality that seem to be running the, the, show is yeah is it, absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. thank you for <laughs> <laughs> taking over that uh yeah it's it's difficult to articulate it and you do end up sort of entering into dangerous territory with terms like postmodernism yeah um when you're trying to critique this stuff but i guess like i feel like many people are still in a process of of finding new words and new concepts and in order to kind of critique what happened in the latter half of the 20th century in philosophy and the seeming kind of congruity of a lot of the ideas with uh, late capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's one thing I'm really interested in. And I guess that's one thing that is kind of, I'm gesturing toward with the nebulous term misology. Yes, yeah. indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. So yeah, in many ways, that's the origin of the term. Is a mm -hmm. kind of form of disillusionment with, uh, with the kind of um, proclaimed radicalism yes. of of late twentieth century uh, French theory and and associated ideas and and just not really seeing those things as as radical as they claim yeah. to be. Um, so uh, yeah, I was. In the end, I just uh, I just wanted to. I think I came in the conclusion of that project to a better understanding of exactly what I was trying to critique. Mm. Yeah, and now and now I want to follow that through. I don't know if I really sort of had that clearly in mind when I was writing the majority of the mm. thesis, but I think it comes through in different ways, and it's interesting. It's interesting how it did come through. Um, I mean, in many ways, it's the thesis itself is very scholarly, and it's a kind of history of philosophy and different readings of Kant and Heidegger, and yeah, the way they that Heidegger read Kant, and yes, and yeah, I didn't focus a lot on on specifically discuss anything really much about late twentieth century thought, or um, but. Uh, but yeah, all of those concerns are are in there implicitly. I I, I think so, and and sometimes explicitly as as well. I think. I mean, we'll we'll get to that. But okay, so out of this this uh, sense of disillusionment, but at this stage, it, it's only a you know, I, I let's just put it for the moment. There's a there's a doubt of, I, I like the formulation you used before, of the proclaimed radicalism mm -hmm. of, of some of these forms of thinking. You're starting to doubt that without necessarily knowing what exactly is wrong with it or what should replace it. Mm -hmm. um, and there is, a, there is a wonderful line in the polemical conclusion to your thesis where you say something like the um, 
uh, it's a wonderfully suggestive and evocative line. You don't have time to follow up in it because it's <laughs> the last like two pages of the thesis or something. That is, you know, that the politicization um, of philosophy has somehow uh, gone along with its increasing political impotence. And I thought I thought that was a very um, uh, striking and kind of profound thought, um, one you didn't have time to develop at the, <laughs> at, at the time, which I do not want you, but is, is this, uh, yeah, could you comment a little bit on what you were thinking about now, or would you, I, I also yeah. accept if you pr no. would prefer us to do that later. I yeah. can try. Yeah. I mean, I feel caught out a little bit, because it was a polemical statement yes. that I slipped in there, but I mean, it has... It has its origins in the work of Ray Brazier, who, yes. who you know I'm a big fan of. And, um, and the thesis shows that he's kind of the secret into, yeah. like at a point where Plato would add a myth, Absolutely. you quote Brazier. Yeah. <laughs> like <he's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He was my, he guided me through. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I, and again, like I didn't expect that. Yeah. Um, again, I, I set out to do a survey of these contemporary speculative realists, and in the end, I felt disillusioned with many of them. But I found Brassier's work to be yes. incredibly compelling. Yes. Um, but I mean, he makes a lot of polem polemical statements at the opening and conclusion of many of his own uh, essays he and, does, and yeah. articles, and um, and yeah, at a few different times, I guess what I'm I should clarify the statement. So I think you, s you quoted it. It says, uh, the politicization of philosophy has, has led to its political, increasing political impotence. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I should clarify what I mean there by the politicization of philosophy is something like the idea that a philosophy itself or the activity of philosophizing is intrinsically political, yes. which I think after you know 1968 does kind of become uh, an assumption. Yeah, a doxa, um, something. Yeah, 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 yeah indeed. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. idea that that thinking itself and thinking in this kind of deconstructive way um, to sort of take a dig at Derrida again, but <laughs> um, is somehow I intrinsically intrinsically political, and so there's a loss. You know, Brassier talks a lot about how there's a loss of the ability to think in terms of strategy or for philosophers to see themselves as political subjects as well as philosophers and kind of think about uh, maybe the... I mean, we're getting into murky territory regarding the relationship between the proper relationship between philosophy and politics. True, I've asked questions. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess uh, I want to just think for a moment. There's a quote. I'm terrible at I can't quote like. Um, There's, uh, I'm trying to answer this in multiple ways, okay. <coughs> uh, just to put it simply, okay. To put it simply, I guess what I'm trying to get at there is that 
the movement towards the idea that the act of philosophizing itself is somehow intrinsically political, I guess that that assumption functions to, I think, uh, relinquish the responsibility of philosophers to engage in in political practices outside of of their philosophy or yes. to seriously consider, I guess, the material political implications of, of some of their ideas, yes. which is another issue. Um, and so then I think the problem is that you find a lot of, uh, for me personally, a lot of uh, like French post-structuralist ideas, whether they're aware of it or not, are quite amenable to what I consider to be politically problematic um, readings and and implications, especially concerning, I guess, capitalist social relations yes. and, and things like that. So that's what I was yeah. pointing towards in that polemical statement. I don't know if I've really clarified it, but um, I'm proud of it as a sentence. No, I think I, it reads well. I think it does, and the thesis as a whole reads very well, and I think it has because I mean, yeah, obviously this is a this statement is multi-dimensional yeah. and raises the question of the relationship between philosophy and politics. But I do think your statement clarifies the fact that I mean, in one sense, we could say that philosophy, like we could say that anything is trivially political insofar as being concerned with the general socio-political milieu or produced within that. But I think the question is, is that First of all, when something is true, almost anything, and that's trivial, um, is it worth claiming? But mm -hmm. second, I, my sense is that your argument is more against a kind of self-declared radicalism and mm -hmm. so forth. Or like, first of all, I declare my thought to be radical, and then I suggest that insofar my thought is radical, it has radical, and not just radical, but radical emancipatory implications implications that it performs mm. uh, in itself without any sort of question of actual effects and then you mentioned strategy and and so forth yeah and i i see this um recoil from that uh, arguably rather smug assumption right that, yeah. that we can get into and and we could even yeah we could tell sociological stories about academic bad conscience yeah, and, and in relationship to knowledge of certain privileges and positions in society then needing to be disavowed by the suggestion that one is a champion of, of, of the oppressed and so forth and, and leading to not ever thinking about whether one's work does do all of the things that you're sort of self-servingly yeah. um, claiming that it, it does. But yeah. let, me, let me come then to, to via Brassier, uh, who we'll talk a lot about, but to the speculative realism Question. So, I mean, your, your thesis starts by talking about Carlton um, uh, Meissi's work. Was he the first, when you went down this journey, was, was Meissi the first speculative? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you read, so oh, find out this movement, you, you read After Finity, mm -hmm. okay. and what was, your, what was your initial reaction to reading After Finity? I remember I, I was in the State Library of Victoria, actually, oh, right. yeah. and I, I took it off the shelf and I opened it and I did I did not understand a word, uh -huh. mainly because the register was something I hadn't encountered yeah. sure. before, and that in itself was compelling. Yes. Um, 
but there was something about it that I just, I couldn't forget. I mean, I was in town. I wasn't living in Melbourne at the time. No, yeah. I was in town very briefly, so I sort of went to the library a couple of days, took it off the shelf, read a few pages, but I just... And then I went back to Queensland, but I, I couldn't stop thinking about yes. this book. And I desperately wanted to pursue uh, pursue it further and, and attempt to understand it better. And um, But I was based at a university where uh, he was an unknown entity. Yes. So it was difficult to try and convince my supervisors that, you know, <laughs> this, this thing that I don't really understand, but like I feel <laughs> like it's important, uh, it's worth, you know, me, me pursuing and them supervising. So that was the first book I read. Um, I was also, at the time, I think I was already familiar with Graham Harmon because, um, because Heidegger's, Martin Heidegger's work has had a huge sort of influence on me and I, I've, I've, so I encountered Harmon through that. I knew that he was using Heidegger's ideas in like this new unorthodox way and I was, so I, I also read his work around the same time. That was It was easier to understand because I already had a background in, in what he was talking about. Um, and then, yeah, but I mean, I, I didn't find Harmon's work very philosophically interesting. Mm. Um, but I, I found his treatment of Heidegger strange and, and not, not very... Strange. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, and like problematic for some similar reasons that I was talking about before. Right, interesting. Like, uh, uh, French post-structuralism and stuff. But it was reading, I think it was reading Brassier's uh, essay on Prometheanism uh-huh. in the Accelerationist Anthology, uh, where he critiques, in, the, in that essay, he basically critiques the political implications of Heidegger's philosophy of technology, yes. which had been a big preoccupation of mine throughout my undergrad, and I wrote, ended up writing an honors thesis right. on that. So uh, that was, I was, I've always been incredibly uneasy about, about that essay, but never able to like fully articulate why. And when I read this paper on Prometheanism um, by Ray, I just felt like, yes, I absolutely, <laughs> I'm on board. And, and, you know, he was the one who translated Maesu's yes. finitude, and so I was I was kind of, I think I read all these texts or encountered them around the same, in the same sort of six-month period or something, and decided to go back to university and, and pursue whatever it was, like basically an attempt to understand whatever it was that was going on here. And how it might help me deal with um, questions I I had and the kind of disillusionment that I was experiencing. So, if you sit on Heidegger's the essay, the question concerning technology, I I won't go into the details of this, but I'm imagining, um, thinking, uh, really guessing, uh, but the, the kind of thing people have done with that work is given pending ecological crises and so forth. There's been lots of work people saying, yes, Heidegger um, correctly points out the failings of a, um, a kind of what in other contexts is called 
instrumentalization of nature, a dominant instrumental reason which turns the whole world or beings into kind of resources mm -hmm. for our projects and the problem is subjectivism and, and that can be traced back well ultimately to the pre-Socratics mm -hmm. but, but, but the kind of fall is with Cartesianism mm -hmm. and so forth and we need to um, overcome these structures in a hydrogen way let beings be yeah, harsh you are a highest notion of galassonide in the thesis but, <laughs> but, um, uh, but uh, uh, were you advocating that sort of thing at the time of the honours thesis in a way that right <laughs> sorry <laughs> Poxy um, uh, let's sort of shade face <laughs> look at that right and, and so not long after this there's a kind of encountering Ray talking about Brassier talking about Prometheism you're like no there's, there's something wrong with, with yeah, this perspective, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I end that thesis will never see the light of day. <laughs> but I did write a defense of, of Heidegger's yes. question concerning technology against some unsuspecting, you know, analytic philosophers who thought Heidegger was crazy and I managed to refute right. them yeah. you know, because they just didn't understand the being yeah. of beings. No, because um, they probably just thought it was mystagogic nonsense. Exactly. Persuaded them otherwise. Exactly. So, yeah. but you, would <laughs> you would stand by the correction of their incomprehension, I yes, imagine. Yes, I would. I, would. Right. Um, I don't think Heidegger is a fatalist or a determinist. Right, for interesting. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I think because of my own political convictions, I, I have problems with the idea of Galassenheit mm. and the, I, the idea that uh, although I, I find the idea of, um, of the diagnosis of, I guess, in framing and bestand and, mm. and all of these concepts, I find them really compelling um, and I think they're useful for understanding what's going on in industrial capitalism. He never calls it industrial capitalism. No, he doesn't. <laughs> and and I guess that's my that's my concern. So yeah. I, once you get to the end of of understanding exactly what Heidegger is saying, or if that isn't even possible, I'm not sure. Mm. But when you get a grasp of it, and then you're told that sort of the correct thing to do, if there is any normative sort of directive in that work is to basically meditate on yeah. the history of the different epochs of being uh -huh. and have faith in the possibility of another one arising, not that you can ever instrumentally bring that about. Yeah, um, that because be that contributing would, to yeah, the problem. Yeah. That would be to yeah. precisely to reinforce yeah. like, the source of the problem yes. in the first place. Um, you get pretty frustrated yeah. with that pretty quickly, and it's hard to live. I mean, maybe not for everyone, but for me, I, I find it hard to believe that there's not something else that I can do. So, um, and I'm a, I'm a Marxist, and yeah. I, yeah, so encountering and Ray's work and seeing, I guess, reading someone who I, I thought really deeply understood Heidegger, yes. which uh, the critics that I was sort of fighting back against earlier when I was defending Heidegger, I, I felt like they didn't, like you said, they 
they didn't understand Heidegger and I would still defend their incomprehension. I would defend him against their incomprehension. But I I felt like I'd encountered a thinker who really had a deep understanding of of exactly what Heidegger was trying to say, but also had a a very sophisticated and compelling political critique and, and response to that. And that was that was when I decided to kind of I think that this was uh, a philosopher I wanted to follow uh, closely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So to take up the question of Prometheanism in, in general, maybe before I get to the, the details of what Ray says about it. So if you know, excuse the the simplifications, I, I'm I'm going to say to you in retrospect, see. Uh, a quietism in Heidegger, a relation to this idea of Gelassenheim. It's a strange word of a strange provenance, you probably know, the, the, the Meister Eckhart's um, use of that, of that term. But regardless of, of where it, it, it comes from and so forth, that in context it has quietistic implications that um, it seems to epochal, right, related to the shake the destiny and the sending of being and maybe not to actually more banal like what people are doing like more sort of on take things yeah. like industrial capitalism <laughs> and so forth and you think really like what, what's this with but prometheanism so prometheus uh his name means means forethought in greek um uh, mythological figure subject of a trilogy by Aeschylus, of which we only have the second volume, uh, Prometheus of uh, uh, Shelley attempts to write a third, the third volume in English in a text called Prometheus Unbound. But okay, well, uh, my sense is in Ray Brassier's essay, this is the, the figure of the, the person who says, who steals the fire, right? Who steals the fire of the gods and gives it to humanity for, for their emancipation. And, um, as opposed to saying, you know, this is too dangerous, um, it, it, it needs to be kept within certain sacred limits, and so forth, and, and or I see you could maybe associate uh, a Heideggerianism with this anti-Promethean idea, right? That, yeah, that reason, technology, it's unleashed, and it is, and the result is a darkening of the world, is a kind of disaster, and instead you have someone like Brass, if I understand him, Arguably, the, the joining the rhetoric of, among other things, the, the Communist Manifesto with its uh, famous lines about all this solid matter to air, or um, all that is holy is profaned, where, where capitalism in some ways, or the march of the bourgeoisie, is described as unleashing endless destruction. But the, but the idea is not to regress to some primordial Edenic state of innocence before we did that, but to, to seize the fire, right? Like to yeah, take hold of the productive forces. And you, this is, am I right? So this is the sort of thing you hear and think, damn right. Yeah, yes. that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But that's, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's, I put things in very vague and, and, and general uh, uh, terms, but I suppose you could say, well, the, the critique as I just made it is the sort of thing you'd find in lots of Marxist critiques of Heidegger, for example. But there's something else going on in what Brassier has to say, something more to do, we're going to come back to this question of mythology, of, uh, to do with the fate of, of, of reason and mm-hmm. how we should think of reason. Can you tell me a bit about 
that aspect. Of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so I, I mean, like you said, I think it, it, it's pretty easy to see what, what a Marxist would think of Heidegger and, and they would just kind of like fundamentally disagree yeah. with his conclusions and suggest that we do these other things. Yeah. Um, but what's different about reading Brassier is, I guess, and, and his take on it is his concern, he's a philosopher and he's concerned about the fate of reason. Yes. Maybe more so than, I mean, I, I can't speak for him, but, you know, maybe more so than the fate of humanity. He's yes. He's concerned with the fate of philosophy. Yes, um, I think he might embrace that, I, I think... <laughs> You might have a sort of, I, I, I also, sorry, but a kind of, yeah, Periat Mondos yeah. fiat philosophy or a suit or something. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Well, he certainly says things like, I am a nihilist because I believe in, believe in truth, right, yes. for instance. Yes, know? absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and what's so compelling, what was so compelling about his work for me was, like I said, that I felt he, he really understood uh, what... Heidegger's argument is and had a philosophical, a philosophically sophisticated response to it rather than just a political disagreement, I guess. Um, and that consists in, and, and I spoke about this at the MSCP. Very eloquently. Um, what it consists in, I guess, is the status of, for him, he's, he's concerned with the epistemic status of, uh, oh, Okay, let me rephrase. I think what he's concerned with is what he takes to be the misunderstanding or the misrepresentation of finitude mm -hmm. in, in continental philosophy after Heidegger. So, you know, um, we could argue about where this concept comes from, but I, I guess you can point a finger towards Kant and talk about, I guess, the initial uh, genesis of the idea of human finitude as being our concepts and our understanding of the world being limited by our, our sensory um, capacities, our, our intuitions. Um, and a lot of Ray's work is preoccupied with, I guess, distinguishing between the epistemological and the metaphysical um, which get conflated a lot in Heidegger's work, or whether you want to call it the epistemological and metaphysical, or epistemological and ontological. Or, um, so his concern, I guess, is the, the reduction of... The difference between the unknown and the unknowable, yes. I suppose, or the as yet unknown and the ineffable. Yes. And I think really that's what distinguishes Kant's conception of finitude, in my opinion, from Heidegger's. Yes. Is that, and and the, now I've sort of come to a better understanding of the limitations of Kant, and I, which I think Hegel really well Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, just to stick with Kant and Heidegger for the time being, I think there's a big difference between Kant's claim that there are, there are things that, that we don't know, there are things that are unknown because we're limited by our sensory capacities, and what you get in Heidegger, which is the idea that there is a kind of 
a segment or layer of of experience which is just fundamentally unintelligible and ineffable and that I guess layer or segment of of human experience it's not necessarily conscious experience um, is the ground of everything yes it's the ground of all of all knowledge of all understanding yes so I mean that completely transforms Kant's conception of finitude in a way that basically renders reason entirely impotent. I mean, reason is, is somewhat impotent in Kant as well and limited, but there's a sense in which that which is unknown may over time become knowable. Yes. Yes. But in, in Heidegger, that's absolutely not the case. Um, there's a sense in which, yeah, there's a fundamental incapacity for certain forms of reasoning um, to ever grasp its own ground, which is for him fundamentally irrational and unintelligible. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in what you've said, and you go over mm -hmm. some things in the. Um, it, it, it goes to the heart of what you're saying in the thesis. I, I want to unpack some of this and maybe and draw in some distinctions. So at the, the beginning of the thesis, you talk about, um, well, actually, at the very beginning, you talk about this category of conceptual personae um, and and uh, from, from Deleuze and Guattari, and talk about the, the a vision that comes out in the light of particularly Mayasu's work of the three conceptual component of, of I think it's, it's Kant, the correlationist, Heidegger, the fideist, and Deleuze, the subjectalist. Now, at mm. least two of those terms will be perhaps uh, unknown to, to <laughs> probably known to many of our listeners, but but not to others. But if I could, if I could start mm. with Kant, because it's crucial, we'll go to the Kant-Heidegger relation. The, the way you set it up, as I recall, like is there's there's this argument from Messi in Artifinity that that. Uh, that you recount that I think goes something like this. It says, um, well, um, philosophy post-Kant uh, has accepted as this kind of orodoxa, a kind of what Mersu famously calls correlationism, where correlationism is understood as we are, Mersu really hates the following Heideggerian phrase, always already within um, consciousness or a subject world relationship or, or some uh, post-Cartesian horizon, right, which, which cannot be transcended. And it renders earlier questions of um, realism versus idealism or subject versus object kind of moot, right? That this is the old pre-Kantian philosophy. And then Mercy says, but, uh, and, and uh, sorry, Mercy also argues that why this was necessary um, or generally considered lesser in philosophy is because it comes from Kant's critique of what he, Kant calls dogmatic metaphysics, particularly things like the ontological, the ontological proof of the existence of God, right? So um, for Kant to have knowledge, uh, we, we restrict, or this is when it's going to get complicated, we can have knowledge of objects of experience, and we can have knowledge of objects of our experience because, to some extent, the categories and the concepts of our mind is responsible for those things as objects of experience, even though 
the categories and concepts of our mind do not create reality to core. Um, and then Mercy says, but this creates two problems. On the one hand, there is scientific claims that refer to, you mentioned the, the archaic fossil, that refer to things anterior to any possible givenness to the human, because there's no human subject, like so claims about the accretion of the earth or the age of the universe and so on. Okay, and that's one problem. The second problem is, is Mayasu says, in rejecting dogmatic metaphysics, which we can maybe agree is a good thing, like armchair metaphysics, where you try and define what the world is like through pure reason, um, this leaves us vulnerable not to dogmatic theological metaphysics a la Leibniz, but to um, rather to a new fideism, right? Mm. To someone saying, no, but I have a, a direct intuition of God, and you can't say, you philosophy can't say anything about that because I'm claiming that it's a intuitive knowledge of an in itself that thus goes beyond the correlation between consciousness and world in which we're always already, I, yeah, excuse me, Enmeshed. Yeah, nice, nice, enmeshed, right? And you seem to, to, you take up this problem, right? But it seems the first thing you do is um, point out that that Kant can be seen as as this arch-correlationist. Mesu himself makes the distinction between Kant's weak correlationism and, and other forms of strong correlationism, and he says weak correlationism says, well, which is less problematic, but still a problem for Meosu, mm -hmm. weak correlationism involves saying uh, there is uh, um, an in itself, um, which we cannot know, mm -hmm. because it can never be an object of our experience, but we can nonetheless think. Yes. Um, and this is where you come in with a, a, a reading of, of, of Kant that I, I see as a, as a correction of, of Mayasu in a sense. Can you uh, yeah, go into absolutely. that for me? Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. So I guess like my methodology when I was writing the thesis was to, to outline, uh, and you've got a great grasp of <laughs> of the project as a whole was to outline Meosu's critiques of these major figures of philosophy. But my methodology was to kind of go with the critique, but then go back and read the text from Meosu's point of view and basically decide whether I agreed with him or not. Mm. <laughs> and uh, in the case of Heidegger, the Fideist, and Deleuze, the Subjectalist, I, I largely did agree yes. with, with the critiques and found them compelling. But um, but I, I did like fundamentally disagree with his reading of Kant yes. in many ways, and and I'm still unsure about how, about how I feel, you know, around those issues now. Um, but in the thesis, I defended Kant against the charge of correlationism, mm. and it's very clear in After Finitude the conflation. I mean, Meisu constantly conflates between the unknowability and the unthinkability yes. of the in itself. He despite often, making that distinction, yeah, he then goes on to it yeah, at, yeah. earlier in the book, then yeah. he goes on to sort of talk about the unthinkability of the in itself mm, mm, mm. in relation to Kant all the time, which is just fundamentally <laughs> wrong. No, wrong. indeed, indeed. Um, so, yeah, I, I defended Kant against the claim that 
that he's a correlationist in the sense that I don't think the concept of the in itself has any kind of uh, correlate in the external yes. world. Yes. Um, I think it's a fun, It's basically an epistemological tool which is used to guard against things like dogmatic metaphysics and it functions as a Grenzbegriff or a border, a border concept. concept. Yeah. yeah, a border concept. So in that sense, um, and there are, I mean, there are many uh, scholars throughout the history of, of Kantian scholarship who, who have, who agree with me, who've, who've yes. read Kant in this way. I think it's a good way to read Kant. Brassier reads Kant in this way as well. Um, that the in itself doesn't refer to anything outside of thought, outside of the understanding, and in fact, it's an it's an epistemological tool. Um, so to say or to claim that it kind of uh, stops us from being realists about the world or, or uh, being empirical realists in the way that Kant proclaims himself to be, despite sort of having his epistemological limits drawn, um, I just thought it was manifestly wrong. But that that led me to then inquire further into why Kant gets read this way, mm-hmm. you know. And I think there's things in Heidegger and and the continental tradition that kind of reinforce this reading of Kant that I think is, is misguided in many ways. Um, so I was trying to shine light on that. I, I don't know, is there... We can go into more detail as well if you want. Well, I, I mean, I... I'm interested in some technical detail because just because I think your argument is a very uh, compelling and, if you may say, mildly genius one, right? In the <laughs> sense that, so uh, there are various readings, some of which you draw on, such as uh, Henry Allison's uh, mm-hmm. beloved of some of my um, MSCP colleagues, who who really point out against other figures that like, quote like um, Strawson that. Uh, Kant has, you call it, I think this is from Alison, that, that the difference between phenomena and, and noumena or the object in, in itself is a is a two-aspect rather than two-world theory, right? So yeah, this is, so you deny, and, and this seems, this this in itself does not seem uh, that original is the next move you make. So the, the first move is to say, no, um, against, uh, again, as you point out and, and when Kant wrote the critique of pure reason a lot of the reaction uh, among what will become German idealism is this objection to the idea of the thing in itself right, right. and you you trace this quite beautifully you say yeah so people say well on the one hand uh, it, the thing in itself positing the thing in itself suggests that there's this ineffable alterity to reality yeah. beyond our concepts and categories that we can never know. That's bad. But second, it kind of betrays the critical system to be able to talk about that at all. Yeah, also absolutely. bad. Ergo Kant is inconsistent. What is he what is he talking about? And and you're right, lots of Kant scholars have said, no, this is this is not what he's doing, right? Um, but the really interesting move that I think you make, the one that I find so compelling, which you say Brasset also does, is to is to look at these distinctions as epistemological rather than ontological mm. distinctions. So you say what, 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 
but can you say a bit about how you understand that? Like, what does it mean to make the thing in itself uh, an, or an epistemological category as opposed to an ontological category? Yes. Okay. Okay, so just to reiterate and get me on track and we can edit this out later. Sure, of course. There's a difference, like you said, between imagining those two worlds, which yeah. is just like distressing for <laughs> people because it sets up this transcendent realm of inaccessible entities yeah. that we can never that we can never know and that causes a lot of people obviously distress. It does. Um it also leads to the problem of, well, if this realm is truly inaccessible, we can't even talk about it, yeah. so Kant's overstepped his own bounds, yeah. and therefore the whole system falls apart. Um, so in order to save Kant, <laughs> yes. you have to think about lots of like technical distinctions, I suppose. Um, the most important being the, I guess, the idea that what he's doing is epistemology yes. in the critique of the reason. And I, I do believe that's the case. Um, so if you think that's the case, then the noumenon is not, it, it's not a concept which refers to any transcendent entity or mm -hmm. accessible entity. It's a purely, like I said, I keep referring to it as a tool. Yes. So it's an epistemological tool which functions to guard against the application of concepts to transcendent yes. a transcendent realm, which yes. is precisely what you know Kant's trying to do in order to um, deal with the problems that he perceives in the rationalist and empiricist traditions. Yes. Um, so in that sense, it's not an arbitrary concept. Uh, it's necessary mm -hmm. in order to avoid being a dogmatist or an, an empiricist. I mean, to avoid being a rationalist or an empiricist, it's necessary. Um, but I guess the also the other element that it addresses really effectively is to safeguard the existence of the real world yes <laughs> which seems completely antithetical and like it it seems completely i mean what's so fascinating about this reading of kant is that it it seems completely counterintuitive to claim that everything is an idea even the idea of the real world is nothing more than an idea and we need to think that in order to like in order to maintain the integrity of of the, I guess, like the real world or, or yeah. reality. But that's precisely what it's 
function is. That I c- would be my claim. No, yeah. I completely agree. As <laughs> I, I, you, you mentioned this, but it's in a sense the central move of the critique of pure reason with its distinction between transcendental idealism and I think you cite this at some point. This, this is something Kant says explicitly in the critique, that his mm-hmm. transcendental idealism is to stop the sort of dialectic between um, transcendental realism and empirical idealism. So I know we're multiplying technical terms, <laughs> but just to, um, just to, to give something to the audience. So if, in, if you take empirical idealism to mean, I'll make it a simplified sort of Buckleyan argument, right? Like we cannot get out of consciousness. So it, um, even our knowledge of the external world is... Is, an, is present to consciousness, is an idea in consciousness, ergo, we have no claim to talk about the external world. And this is, a, in its own way, I think, an oddly powerful argument, but also one that people also feel cannot be true, right? So that would be empirical idealism. But Kant then says there is a link, and you bring this out, between that view, empirical idealism, and transcendental realism that mm. you start saying no 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 we just we just have knowledge of things in themselves the way the reality is and Kant says well but that is what opens up that to the specter of empirical idealism Absolutely. right so yeah so what is can I get you to, to have your version of the the alternative to that to what is transcendental idealism as something that rejects both of these because it sounds like, and this is maybe why everyone gets it wrong, at the beginning, what you just said could out of context, like that everything is an idea, and I, I know you're aware of this implication, <laughs> sound like the Barclayan thing, the empirical yeah. idealist thing, which Kant is constantly accused of, especially by analytic philosophers, um, maybe maybe by Meosu, and and in a in a limited sense, even though he has a you know he he understands the critique of pure reason but you but you say no yeah this is this is not true transcendental I, you, you in a sense at least at the time of the thesis accept that transcendental idealism in a read by you saves us from the sort of uh, link between these other two things that are putative opposites transcendental realism mm. and empirical idealism okay? yeah. yeah absolutely i mean i can try i can try and summarize it but i the best way to i mean kant's claim and he's explicit about this in the first critique, is that if you start out a transcendental realist, which means that you start out thinking that we do have access to the real world or we're capable of talking about the real world. Yeah. If you start out a transcendental realist, you end up an empirical idealist. Yep. Whereas if you start out a transcendental idealist, you end up an empirical realist. Yes. And yeah, there's something like deliciously paradoxical Absolutely. about yeah. that claim. But I, I think if you follow it through in all of its technical kind of acrobatics, (laughs) it makes sense and it's coherent. Um, It's it's difficult to explain all of this without talking about the problem of affection as well. Uh uh And I guess... um, You can go there if you want, right? (laughs) Yeah, so uh, basically, I guess, I think... I think Wilfred Sellers uh-huh. is really useful uh-huh. for understanding or attempting to understand how this position can be coherent. Yeah. Um, and the key thing in Sellers' reading of Kant is 
his insistence on the distinction between sensations and intuitions. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess the problem that a lot of the two world theorists um, have with Kant, the ones that claim that Kant's theory is, is uh, inconsistent because he talks about this other realm which apparently he can't access, but he must talk about it in order to explain where intuitions come from. Basically, we, we must be affected by the world in order to have intuitions, in order to apply the categories to them and then sort of, um, and sort of gain knowledge of the world. Uh, and that's the idea that we must be affected by the world in some way. Yeah. That if we were enclosed in a sort of monad of our own minds, you couldn't account for experience. That this is the refutation of idealism, yeah. right? In some ways, there has to be something outside that's generating the content of yeah, experience. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the two world theorists will claim that unless you're a two world theorist, you can't sort of explain this process of yeah. how, to, how are we affected by the world in the first place that we can even sort of have experiences yes. that lead to knowledge. Um, and the thing that Sellers does is he draws this really important distinction, like I said, between sensations and intuitions. Mm -hmm. So for him, um, we're at, we are affected on a sensory level by the physical world, you know, and he's a scientific naturalist, mm -hmm. so he, he'll use that terminology. There's a causal relationship between our bodies and the physical environment in which they exist. Um, but intuitions are not... Uh, intuitions are fundamentally distinct from sensations in that they're conceptually conditioned. So the content of our experience is uh, always like down, right down to the bottom, conceptually conditioned already. This doesn't mean that we're not affected by the world or by the external world. It's just that um, those that sensory input is inaccessible to consciousness. Um, so in that sense, you can be an empirical realist about the world. You can be a scientific naturalist about the world as well, while still maintaining that we have no conscious access or conceptual access to that world, you know, directly. And I think that, um, I think that really helps explain, I guess, or at least make coherent this seemingly paradoxical conclusion that's that's brilliant actually the yeah the treating um intuitions as conception it 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 seems that the what you're doing is focusing on the word direct right that when you're saying we don't have direct access to it to the external world the the point is not we don't have access to the external world it's just that it is always mediated by a, um, a set of conceptual forms. This is, this is interesting to me for a number of reasons, because on the one hand, um, there's the question of what that does philosophically, and the way I understand uh, maybe to, oh, it puts you in pretty good company, but uh, Brassier, Emma, and um, Sellers, that one <laughs> of the things to, to, to lump you together is that this means, well, those conceptual forms of mediation are not um, irrevocable, right? They can be they can be revised in terms of new data in the in, in the way of, of the sciences, even though the naive or 
transcendental realist who just thinks, look, we just directly perceive things as they are, is still wrong. Now the criticism of that naive realist is is not an obstacle for science knowing the world, but a kind of precondition. Yeah, that seems that seems that seems very uh, clever in writing. I think though there is a a, a question, maybe not an important question, but uh, a sort of hermeneutic question about how much we this we think this is what Kant was saying or a way of making sense of it and and that's me picking up on your remark about um, Hegel before is that I think you could see the focus on on the sort of conceptual mediation of all things as maybe a more sort of reading Kant back in the light of of Hegel absolutely Uh, yeah yeah I think I think so and I mean admittedly when I was writing this thesis I I had very very little knowledge of Hegel right and I think that kind of becomes apparent because I don't mention him in this in these moments where now like having sort of committed myself to studying Hegel over the past year um now it's very obvious to me that, yeah. <laughs> that this is this is a, like yeah this is Hegel's critique of Kant in lots of ways or his his yeah. read, his improvement of Kant in in many ways is is to take up the idealist strain and not sort of see it as a problem at all but actually uh, I mean now I'm just I'm really fascinated I think there are definite limitations to to Kant's project, which can be overcome, yes. you know, through through reading Hegel, um, and it is a mild Hegelian adjustment. Like yeah. you haven't thought, because because arguably some will say Hegel does this other thing that you later talk about with regards to subjectalism as the absolutization, the correlation, etc. Yeah. So maybe we're not talking about the a sort of Kant-Hegel alternative, but uh, no, reading Kant in the light of him at least. Uh, and there's a really, there, I mean, and whether this is influenced by Hegel or not, I'm not sure, but, you know, there's a there's an ongoing debate still today about, I guess, the status of conceptual or non-conceptual knowledge yes. in Kant. And yes. that's, that's a debate that I'm very interested in and was kind of in the background of all of this as well. Huh. It's like the status of of intuition. Yes. This I, I guess and the nature of, of that supposed kind of connection that we have with the external world um, and our access to it. So many Kantian scholars will claim that we do have this kind of non conceptual yes. intuitive yes. access direct access yeah. to the external world. Others will claim that that's ridiculous. Yes. Um, and so, I'm, and again, like, I mean, I'm sure these debates are informed by Hegel, but they don't seem, they don't have to be. They're, no. They're often just kind of scholarly readings and interpretations of the critique of pure reason. Um, but they do, that debate does, like, provide a lot of resources for understanding how we could make sense of what Kant was trying to say. Um, or yeah, build on, I mean, I guess like underlying it all is the question of the value of sort of making Kant coherent to himself. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think that was my primary concern. My primary concern was to, uh, make sense of how we could 
maintain, I guess, the independence and integrity of the external world, yet still uh, be convinced of its existence and <laughs> yes. be justified in that. Yes. In that. So, and and yeah, I think I managed to find a way, and and yeah. I think you. I think you did, and you then use this to distinguish. Um, sort of with but against Maosu, and we've mentioned this before, where it goes wrong with Heidegger. As you mentioned that, that question of, um, okay, if, if this two-world reading, if looking at, at the thing in itself as an ontological category is a mistake that leads to the thing that Maosu calls correlationism. Why do people read Kant in this way? And it's at this point that you turn to Heidegger and um, particularly um, his uh, Kant book, uh, mm -hmm. Kant and the Problem of Metaphysics. And um, interestingly, the, the uh, famous debate between Heidegger and, and Kassira in, in mm -hmm. 1929 at, at Davos. Can you... Um, uh, Tell us a little bit about, about what you think um, uh, Heidegger does. Uh, I mean, uh, to anticipate, I know, because uh, you've already alluded to it, that part of your argument is, is to do with the status uh, Heidegger gives to the transcendental imagination. In, in yeah, Kant. absolutely. So, yeah, I became, in, in trying to answer this question of why Kant gets read as a as a two-world kind of theorist rather than in this way that I think makes a lot more sense in the context of the book. I turn to Heidegger, who I think is like quite foundational in the way in which Kant sort of gets taken up throughout the 20th century. Um, and I am critical, as he was too, of his Kant book and, and his reading of Kant. I mean, he admits that he used Kant in yeah. many ways. <laughs> yeah. Like, after no one understood being in time, he, yes. he just kind of appealed to the idea that, like, oh, well, it's really Kantian, and, like, you <laughs> should just, it was always in Kant, you should, you should see it here. So, I mean, he, he admits later on, like, in the 70s, I think, that um, he was... He was trying to legitimise yeah. his own ontology. I, I actually by, wasn't aware of that, but that yeah, makes sense, right? Yeah, by claiming that um, that like many of the things that he lays out in Being and Time, you know, have to do like come directly out of the critique mm. of pure reason if read in this way. Um, and the person that kind of stands up and says, "No, that's not true at all," is Ernst Cassirer <laughs> at the Davos. And it's, it's a really interesting debate philosophically, but also historically, mm. I think, because, you know, it's happening in 1929. There's a lot of tensions going on in Germany. Kazira kind of represents the, the Jewish cosmopolitan, yes. neo-Kantian yes. um, school of philosophy. Heidegger is a new kind of up-and-coming radical kind of German... Uh, nationalist i suppose um i believe he like went to a lot of these debates in hessian kind of <laughs> ski gear and was representing you know like the yeah the people of the of the the german people of the black forest and you know it was all very 
it was all it was a dramatic debate for lots of different yeah. reasons. But um, so historically, it's interesting. Philosophically, I guess um, a lot of it centers around this conception of, of finitude and what mm. what human finitude is. Um, just one moment. I just need to think about what was the question again. Um, just referring to well, I I think you're exactly on the right. On, on the track, not that I mean you can go wherever you want to, but speaking about finitude is relevant because I I asked you about um, how if if at least in your reading of Kant we don't get this problematic correlationist oh, yeah. figure that might open the door to fideism, a term we haven't defined yet and perhaps need to at some point, but um, Heidegger is the reason for this correlationist turn or or this arguably this mythologist turn in 20th yeah. century philosophy and Absolutely. you're kind of asking for your account about that so we're at Davos yeah so um, I've set the stage yeah <laughs> so we're yeah and we're so arguing we're about finitude and Kant we're asking yeah we're arguing about finitude we're arguing about reason and rationality yeah, yeah, as and, well yeah. so the neo-Kantian school was was kind of at the time I guess like the quite hegemonic yes in Germany um quite well accepted and Heidegger was coming through with this radical response to it which basically I think like the essence of the debate centered around whether or not again returning to this conceptual non-conceptual uh, experience question for Heidegger there was a sense in which as he'd laid out in Being in Time um, he wanted to, I think, supplant the primacy of like reason or the logos within Western metaphysics, and he did that. And and like drawing on what he'd done in Being and Time, he kind of excavated this supposed ontological substratum of unconscious um, experience, um, which was the condition of possibility for all conceptual thought. Um, right, something like how would you characterize like a pre-understanding of being or something yeah. like that? Or? Yeah, like the I mean, we can draw on the terminology. It would be something like the pre-theoretical, yes, uh, primordial life world or the Lebensfeld, yeah. yeah. you know, yeah. of the human being, which is fundamentally structured by our our sense of temporality, our yeah. being towards death, yeah. which sort of uh, I guess, like, enlivens in us a concern for our own existence. Yes, And yes. ultimately gives rise to, uh, ultimately it, it's that more fundamental existential experience of the world, which is the condition of possibility for objects appearing to us in the first place yes. and us being able to sort of conceptualise those objects or theorize about yes. them. It's irreducible, so, untranscendable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So he'd laid out this ontology in being in time and then he was defending it against, you know, in revolt, I guess, against yeah. this this hegemonic neo-Kantian tradition at Davos. And I think his era is a really great interlocutor in many ways because he uh, he's read Heidegger, he's interested in the ideas but at the same time just completely disagrees with the idea that any of this 
comes from Kant or that mm. any, <laughs> any of this has its basis in Kant's critique of pure reason. And he's really articulate yes, um, yeah. in the way in which he extricates out, I guess, Heidegger's reading of Kant from the neo-Kantian kind of reading, which I think is more, in my opinion, more... Um, What's the word? Not accurate. More loyal to the original text in many ways. So, um, one thing I said in the thesis somewhere. I don't know. I mean, fundamentally, for Kazira, Kant is is a realist and a rationalist. Yes. And he and he sees Heidegger as not those things <laughs> like the opposite of those yes, things yes um if so if we took this up around the question of infinity right so there's a there's a sense in which you could say unless you argue that we're immortal or have a god's eye archimedean understanding of things like finitude is is in that sense trivial right we're we're, we're not immortal we're not omniscient right finitude right okay but so both it seems to me that both Kassira and Heidegger will accept that banal sense of our finitude. Agree yeah, that Tom talks about that We're finitude. Not We're not God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who would have, who would have thought? Damn. I mean, I mean, arguably Hegel would. Yeah, disagree. That's, a, that's another. That's yeah. Let's not go there. But um, but okay. We don't have, and we don't have in particular a direct or unmediated access to the absolute. Fine. This this is not controversial. However, um, then it seems to me, and then you take this up, that Kassira is going to say that from that banal sense of finitude, Heidegger strengthens the, or the meaning of our finitude in a way that leads to something like this correlationist, we can't um, get outside of whatever you want to call it, the destined errors of being out, mm. like the, the horizon of the whatever, etc. Um, and that Kissera thinks, no, finitude is compatible with a certain realism about concepts and particularly scientific concepts. What, what, what's the difference there between, how do they conceptualize finitude differently if they're both Accepting the, the banal sense of yeah. affinity. So they both agree that we're not God. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I think, like, the key distinction, I mean, we can go through everything Heidegger says in the Kant book yeah, yeah. and the different versions, like the transcendental deduction, the A version and the B version, yeah. and which one's correct. Yeah. And, they do disagree about that, don't they? Yes, yeah. they do disagree about yeah. that. So, I mean, very briefly, Heidegger... Um, believes that, uh, you know, in the A version of the transcendental de deduction, you have the three faculties, the understanding, the intuition, and the imagination. But the Im imagination in, in the first version is a kind of independent faculty which synthesizes the understanding and the intuition, but has its own kind of um, integrity outside of... It's, it's not subordinate to either no. of the other faculties. And that's really important for him because it makes it possible for him to talk about this three, this pre-theoretical experiential domain, which exists in this sense of the imagination, upon which 
uh, theoretical understanding um, is based fundamentally. Yeah. Um, and then in the in the B deduction, Kant, what does he say? Kant goes against himself, or steps back. He's too afraid he of what he's discovered. Recoils from his own insight, or yeah. something like that. He recoils yeah. from his own kind of epiphany. Yeah, yeah. And subordinates the imagination to the understanding, and basically considers it a way in which um, the understanding uh, subsumes intuitions under concepts, which yes. is a more like functional, technical, boring way of yeah. thinking about the imagination. <laughs> but, you know, Kazira thinks this is correct and yeah. consistent with what Kant was always trying to do. But I think a, like a good way to dramatize it by Kazira, where he takes the famous quote from Kant that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. theology yeah. And so, and he says, well, for Heidegger, what happens is thought or the understanding becomes the handmaiden of intuition. So it's, it's the intuition or a kind of pre-theoretical existential experience that comes first and theoretical or conceptual knowledge comes, comes second. Um, and he says, but he says, even if we concede this point, that uh, even if we concede that uh, thought is kind of ancillary in, in the realm of, of the faculties, he says that we still need to make a distinction. And the distinction is if it's true, so if it's true that uh, thought is the handmaiden of intuition, we have to ask whether or not um, thought is the maiden that carries the train of the lady or rather the maiden who precedes her with a torch. I really like that. So, um, and, and then Kazira claims that Kant himself conceived of it in this second sense that I guess thought or the understanding is the handmaiden that like precedes the intuition with the torch and allows um, and allows uh, concepts to kind of subsume intuitions. Um, and, and the reason this is so vital for him is because it, it preserves the spontaneity of the understanding um, in terms, as, as something kind of standing beside the receptivity of intuition, um, but not something to which the understanding is subordinate. So ultimately for Heidegger, um, we get this limiting conception of, of finitude because all thought all thought and understanding is ultimately subordinate to a kind of pre-theoretical receptive intuition existential intuition of the world which is brought upon us by our kind of like being towards death mm. um and therefore we can never kind of know uh anything about the kind of ineffable transcendent kind of realm of being um but must exist in this i don't know clearing i guess in the dark in the dark woods or something <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah i some some clarifications and also an, an apology to you Emma, and our listeners because you asked me before about that quote and i said philosophy is the handmaid of theology which is wrong as in that <laughs> is a cliche um a, a line that has been said for many centuries before <laughs> Kant, but specifically 
when you're talking about whether the handmaid is the torchbearer walking ahead mm. or the servant carrying the, the lady's train, the, um, the, uh, what we're talking about, as you, as you quoted, is, is thought versus intuition. Is the yeah, question absolutely. is, is thought the uh, torchbearer or is it the handmaid? And it, it seems to me that what's at stake in this, I, I want to see if you think that this is correct, is that if thought is the um, handmaiden in the sense of carrying the train, that suggests that this pre-theoretical realm is in a sense above or below, actually we change metaphors, maybe the spatial metaphors are inappropriate, but um, in a, inured to rational criticism, right, at, at, at some level, and that that's, that's the problem with it. So, so Kant talking about the transcendental, sorry, uh, Heidegger reading Kant saying the transcendental imagination is fundamental is kind of sexy and may even seem true to, to some extent, yeah. but it's it's the you idea can find textual evidence you can you, you, yeah, yeah you certainly can uh, in the eight direction particularly yeah. but but that if we if we read things like that with heidegger and against kissira you make some something like the transcendental imagination into a condition for the world now it's true that to be fair to Heidegger and I suppose phenomenology, none of them would say they, they, and this is perhaps what marks correlationism, they wouldn't say, as opposed to idealism, that they wouldn't, Heidegger is not saying, oh, that means we, we in a godlike way, create reality through our imaginations. But it is saying um, we never get outside of a world kind of framed by imagination or correlation between what there is whatever that is, beings in their being, and uh, our, uh, you mentioned clearing metaphors and so forth, that, <laughs> that everything is going to be simultaneously concealing and, and revealing, that every revelation leaves behind a sort of dark ground or shadow. something like that, yeah. a shadow, right, nice. Um, uh, and yeah, it's, it seems to me that you except maybe Mercedes and Brassier's critique of that, that that doesn't, that that doesn't, I mean, in terms of trying to think about what, what that would mean, thinking, would it be that if we accept something like that, it denies the possibility of here is a truth radically anterior or irrelevant to our, let's put it like this, systems of meaning in which we, we tend to, to inhabit. So generated historically, socially, right, over through the kind of creatures we are, that science can tell us truths about the universe that are, in a sense, radically independent for our, from our meaning systems, mm -hmm. even if we have, we have to, why Kant is right, access them through such meaning systems. Is that yeah, a fair... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think something you said earlier really distills it, and it's, what did you say? That idea that, um, I mean, the problem is that you can't, there's a kind of substratum of experience, which is the foundation for all thought. Yeah. And because it is the ineffable foundation for all thought, it's beyond rational interrogation or interpretation or debate. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yes, I mean, 
It's interesting the idea that we can't then talk about, or it seems inconsistent to talk about, I guess, like um, the accretion of the earth or these kind of scientific statements that refer to times and places and events that uh, occurred, you know, completely outside of the givenness to any kind of human being. That's interesting. But what interests me more is the idea that uh, our claims about the world um, in being fundamentally conditioned by this kind of mysterious imaginative faculty, mm-hmm. which is non-conceptual um, and unconceptualizable, essentially, um, immunizes uh immunizes thought claims against like rational interrogation um critique and debate and for me that like that's a problem that leads to the capacity for uh dogmatism or different forms of i guess fideism basically um can unpack that time. No, maybe maybe it's, it's time to do so. But this is an important moment, I think, because I think in a way we've come full circle and are now talking about the the clarification of some of your original concerns with the tradition of philosophy that you were trained yeah. in. Um, but as they became apparent to you in doing this in doing this work, and I think, all right, so normally. I would, and I think Messi does, like oppose dogmatism and fideism, right? So we say dogma is often coming from a, an argument from from authority in a non-philosophical context, like in talking about the, the Catholic Church, the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Um, dogmatic metaphysics for Kant means without reference to objects of experience, like a priori reasoning about transcendent reality. And then fideism, I think, traditionally means instead of accepting a dogma, like from the Catholic Church, you say, no, no, but I I, I take this on faith, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, if a dogmatic metaphysics overemphasizes the power of reason to know the world, thereby, I think you quote Brassier saying this, uh, thereby presuming implicitly that there's some kind of metaphysical harmony between thought and being, as in as in Leibniz or maybe in Greek metaphysics, right? Mm-hmm. If that's the sin of dogmatism, fideism, something Maosir thinks, um, takes anything that is critical of the powers of reason as an argument on its own side. So you're mm-hmm. going to have... Uh, to use dogmatism in a non-philosophical conf- conflict, I'm thinking in everyday languages when we're talking about religion, um, the difference between dogmatism and fundamentalism, right? Mm. So if a dogmatism usually in terms of religion comes from accepting authorities in relation to a tradition, fundamentalism in case of, I don't know, Wahhabist or Salafist Islam or the kind of Christian fundamentalism we get in the United States is usually rejects um, uh, authorities mm. and and traditions of interpretation. Uh, that's why uh, you probably know um, Australian academic Walid, Walid Ali, who's, mm. a, who's a, a, 
a Muslim and a theorist, political theorist, a theorist of jurisprudence, and he says this uh, uh, thing that I like where he says, you know, um, people say that Islam needs a reformation because um, uh, it's never had one. It doesn't. It has had a reformation, and that reformation is Al-Qaeda. And, <laughs> and he's, he's kind yeah. of saying that, that for him what's good in, in the Islamic tradition is the, you know, the I, I'm going to mispronounce this word because I don't speak any Arabic at all, but um, the tradition of, I it's something like fish with F-I-Q-H mm -hmm. transliterated, which is the um, uh, theory of jurisprudence, the, the tradition of the interpretation of the law, right, of the Hadith and of the Quran, and that these new fundamentalist movement just throw all that out in the, in the same way that you're... Um, your uh, American Christian fundamentalist doesn't read Augustine and argue about Aquinas, right? It's just the text. It's in English. If it says six days, it means six days. There you, there you, there you go. And and I suppose and and it says look, well, reason uh, cannot penetrate into the transcendent realm that we have access to through through faith, yeah. right? That's one of the things you want to avoid, mm -hmm. if I understand correctly. But, but coming back to philosophy, uh, what would fideism mean in, in this in this context? So so when I think when Mercy is talking about it, he's talking about a philosophical vulnerability to fideism in a sense similar to what I was saying um yeah. but uh, apart from there being that danger in in philosophy of, of not being able to refute fideism do you also see a sort of fideistic element to the the philosophies that um break with the uh um the predominance of the concept in this kusira yeah <laughs> um okay let me think about it. I'm just going to chat for a bit first. But one thing that was interesting was one of my examiners is... Uh, I didn't know him that well, but he's a bit of a theologian. And, okay. and he actually defends Heidegger against Meisu's yeah, right, right. fideism yeah. for lots of reasons in kind of theological... Um, like theolo using theological right. terminology that I'm... Not privy to. Okay, okay. But my basic understanding of the distinction to like translate it over into philosophical terms yeah. would be so you get rid of this kind of like um, early modern mm. proofs for the existence of God using yes. reason and yes. stuff. Descartes, yeah, Leibniz. Exactly. Yep. Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, me. Yeah. Still and, a, a rationalist in this sense, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you have Kant who says, well, you know, we just can't talk about, I mean, we can't have knowledge about these things. Um, therefore, these, yeah, these proofs are, are dogmatic um, and should be avoided. Um, and then, but then, yeah, what you get is this kind of return. Well, it's not a return. It's something very different, like you said, this kind of, fundamentalism which is like we're not claiming like 
this examiner's argument in a number of essays is, is that I think he misinterprets what Mays is saying in some ways. Hmm. He just keeps defending Heidegger against the claim that he's a monotheist mm-hmm. kind of Christian mm-hmm. philosopher or something, which I think is perfectly true. Me too, he's yeah. He's not that. No. <laughs> he's not that. But the problem is he leaves open yeah. this space yeah. for a kind of, well, what I would say, a fanaticism, where you can't, it's a negative form of fanaticism in the sense that, like, you don't claim to know any particular belief about the world to be true or about the transcendent kind of transcendent reality. But in claiming that it's completely ineffable, and like can't be subject to rational interrogation and debate, you leave open, like, you basically render yourself incapable of refuting anybody's claims yes. to the absolute. Yes. And that's essentially what you get with Heidegger, I think. Right. Like the incapacity to refute an irrational, Yes. what I would call an irrational claim about absolute truth or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense to me and I think tracks with Mayer's argument, except apply it more to Heidegger than to Kant. But if we came back to Kant, I mean, I was interested in this by your use of this term fanaticism and I was thinking, are you self-consciously thinking of... um, that that's, I think, one of the English translations, along with enthusiasm of this term, can't use as schwärmerei, particularly, and in his dreams of a spirit seer. But what's interesting about that in the context we're talking about is if I understand that correctly, part of Kant's objection to Swedenborg, that for him what constitutes schwärmerei, unlike, or, or fanaticism, enthusiasm, unlike Mayasu, comes from the dogmatic claim to have access to transcendent realities. Mm. But then I think the thing you're calling a, a fideism, also following Mayasu, is more the sort of thing that you could see coming from, uh, this is how I think Mayasu understands it, Kant's restrictions on such um, reasoning when he yeah. says things like, you know, famously, I, I limit reason to make room for faith or, yeah, or saying, yeah, uh, we can't have knowledge of things that cannot be objects of experience like God, um, immortality, the world and freedom, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they come back as what's the postulates of practical reason, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, You're saying yeah. like you never, because you can't encounter them as an object of experience, I can't just drive a certain distance and then bump into God. It's like, yeah. there's my freedom or whatever. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, but by doing that, that, that move of limiting is the thing that opens up to the fideism. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. But if that, it, so I think that if that's it, do you feel that there is such an element in Kant's because you're reading, which I think is very strong goes, against the idea that that Kant does this because the assumption that he does rest on this misunderstanding of things like the thing in it the thing in itself but mm. is there an element in your mind in 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 Kant that does sort of open the way to the Heideggerian Absolutely. thing or, or there is okay yeah I mean I think that the distinction I, I mean I think just the distinction between 
reasons and causes yeah. in Kant in that first critique and, yeah. and the separation of those two realms is disastrous for philosophy and right, 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 like, right, okay. But only if taken in uh -huh. certain directions, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know, yeah. in the sense of, well, if you do limit reason in this way um, and distinguish it from the causal realm and make it impossible to sort of make naturalistic claims about yeah. the world and dogmatic metaphysical claims about the world, I mean, that's great. Yeah, it is, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um. But, the, I mean... The danger in doing that is then you do leave space for a kind of lots of different claims to be made and there be no way to kind of legitimately delegitimate yes. uh, another point of view on the absolute or something apart from saying, well, that can't be determined. And so you leave room open for faith. Yeah. I think you do. He does leave room open for faith. But I think there's a difference between that, which, I mean, yeah, there's a sense in which it is the condition of possibility for a lot of terrible things happening. But at the same time, I guess it's the question is like, well, is it worth it? Because it stops like all of the, the previous kind of dogmatism from being able to gain purchase. But then, is there a new form of dogmatism? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, which we would need a different word for, whether fideism is the right word or not, I'm not sure. But is there a sense in which a new kind of danger arises in that we can no longer use reason to delegitimate um, potentially like atrocious claims about what is true? Um, if I were to give a name to this, and and this is actually, I have a sense, maybe wrongly, that, that this is more of a problem for you than uh, the objection to the, the claims of faith is is a kind that the, the danger that opens up is that of a sort of prevalent relativism or mm. a relativist catechism yeah, or so forth. Absolutely. It's like, I can't... Um, claim that, I don't know, scientists claim to, to truth or X's claim to truth is any greater than Y, Z's, etc. So you end up with this just cacophony of, um, of, of different ideas, all of which has to be tolerated and accepted and, mm -hmm. and so forth. And, and then amidst that, this very sort of Baduian thing to say the one thing that... He, he, certain things that do get treated as an absolute without any kind of philosophical legitimation, like something like the market, mm -hmm. or whatever, just take the place, just fill the fill the void, while the rest of us are, you know, too scared to say that anyone is wrong. Is that yeah. the... Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it makes it impossible to make normative claims, yeah. to assess um, different claims to truth and judge one to be better than the other. Um and for me, that's a huge, a huge problem. Like not only philosophically but politically as yes. well. Um, so, and something I'm, I'm increasingly concerned with now that I've been reading about. And, uh, you know, people like Robert Brandom will draw this back to Kant's distinction between reasons and causes, hmm. and and say that you know that distinction, whereas, whereas. Prior to Kant, you had all different forms of fusion between the realm of reasons and the realm of causes, and 
in you know Aristotle mm. working all the way through scholasticism to the early modern period, then you get this like complete separation between those two realms, and which is important in a lot of ways. You yeah, know, makes the Enlightenment possible. Right? Yes, um, but there's I think he says there's a revenge of the Kantian distinction against itself huh. when you get um, people like Nietzsche coming along and sort of reducing reasons to causes. Yes. And that's when you get those kind of dangers of, of um, relativism and things coming in because um, ultimately if reasons are reducible to causes then uh, or they're symptoms of, of unreasonable forces, whatever those happen to be, um, then... Yeah, then you have no way of, of making normative claims yeah. about the world, about politics, about anything. And, I mean, for Brandon, obviously, that's a problem. He's pretty into norms. <laughs> and <laughs> But, um, but yeah, I mean, that is now... I, I can articulate better what I was trying to get at. I mean, but I, also regarding just to go back to Heidegger and Kant and mm. Kazira and that debate, I think like Kazira's claim in the end will be that, you know, again, to talk about the distinction between the epistemological and ontological and that if you take up an epistemological conception of finitude, then there's a sense in which there are things that are uncertain um, that like we're limited in our capacities to know the world and so there are things that are uncertain but that's very different from I mean that's a claims about the insufficiency or the incompleteness of our knowledge at a certain point in time and I can hear Hegel again <laughs> <laughs> yes but that's very different from the claim that there are things about our world that are fundamentally irrevocably unfathomable yes um, and that is really what you get from Heidegger, like his, what you could call his ontologization of finitude is the transformation of, of the kind of insufficiency of knowledge into uh, the claim that there is this kind of, kind of unfathomable um, transcendent realm, or not transcendent, it's imminent, yeah. apparently. <laughs> but yeah, this unfathomable realm. Um, which is the condition of possibility for thought itself. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, I'm really interested in what you had to say about reasons and causes there, apropos Brandon and I. I, I. You don't talk about this much in the thesis, but I see how central it is to your concerns. And I, I thought of a way, I, I just want to run with this and see what you think of it, of, of playing this out. So let's say we could argue that some of the thing that... All right, coming back to the use of this term dogmatic metaphysics, that with Aristotle and, and pre-Kantian philosophy, there's, a, there's arguably a conflation between these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that can go with the sort of vision of the world that the world is a, a, a cosmos, it's a beautiful order, and that our language and concepts just carve the world at the joints. There's a natural connection between them. Grammar and the grammar of our languages and metaphysics, they sort of go naturally harmoniously together because the world's a beautiful order. Yeah. Right? Then we ditch that um, because 
Yeah, well, long historical story, but but you know, <laughs> science enlightenment, etc. Let's be very superficial about that. But so we distinguish them, right? But then it seems that some of the things we find out through the sciences actually, you know, arguably point in the direction of some of these Nietzschean insights. So, for example, you can say, well, understanding psychology or or things from neuroscience, I can realize that things that I think are rational justifications for arguments are, I don't know, expressions of my resentment, my unconscious um, will to power, mm-hmm. or um, uh, so, you know, indices of sociological distinctions and so forth. Like I'm playing this this language game of saying around um, of saying, I don't know, class shibboleths or whatever, or things within the game of academia. And I think we can think, yeah, that's true. Like, these things happen indeed. But then it makes me think, in terms of the importance of preserving the distinction between reason and causes, even in the face of things that threaten to collapse it, I think of something like, oh, this is going to sound very uh, twee and unsexy, <laughs> but, but the importance of, like, the principle of of charity in a debate like when we're arguing you and i both know from like i may well be motivated by my various and they believe me they exist now but like neuroses and (laughs) psychological pathologies and they may have led me to say the argument and conversely uh, to argue in the way i do conversely that can be true of you but if we bring that up initially it's mutually assured destruction like the extent to which i can accuse you your, your ideas or your attempted justifications as being mere epiphenomena of mm-hmm. other things. Um, because you can say that to me as well, and everyone can say that to everyone, it can lead to just, well, no one's got any claim of legitimacy. And then, I don't know, what do we let take over a sort of uh, nostrums, like identitarian nostrums, like yeah, insofar as I am X kind of person. In their most... Um, you know, potentially in their fascist mm-hmm. sort of outcome. This is the way we Germans Aryans speak, and therefore, you know, whatever other contest that that that's just the way that's that's just their horizon, their way of thinking about things. And then there's nothing except war between these tribal. Absolutely. Is it, yeah, yeah. Is that a it's fair? all about power? It reduces yeah. reasons to power. Yeah. Um, it, it reduces reason or reasoning, the practice of reasoning to, yeah, a kind of fight. It's war, basically. Yeah. Yeah, because ultimately not only can – I mean, there's a sense in which everything's legitimate insofar as nothing's yes. legitimizable. Yes. Um, so – and I think Nietzsche would, would affirm that. He would. <laughs> really, like, what we're talking about is a power struggle and not um, – and – the idea that, like, ultimately, like, we might try and provide reasons for why we think the way we think about things, but ultimately they're just kind of these superficial rationalizations yeah. of our own, you know, uh, I don't know, libidinal forces or will unconscious will to power yeah, or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Um, and this, I don't know, this brings up a lot of things like, uh, this takes me back to that quote that you pulled out of my thesis about the politicization mm-hmm. of philosophy leading to its political impotence. In many ways, like, 
that is also what I'm referring to is the sense in which if we politicize philosophy in the sense of well every argument one makes is is ultimately uh, an effect of their own kind of historically contingent position within a society and underlying all of our you know fancy arguments are really just these kind of causal these kind of these unreasonable forces which are driving history whatever kind of guys you want to put them in like um, then it makes it impossible for us to as Branham would say like give and ask for reasons and, yes and and compare I guess like to have a debate about what is the more legitimate kind of view of a particular issue or the, the more uh, legitimate strategy in a political situation or yeah all of these things that's something I'm I'm really concerned with and it's also something that's led me to have more caution about Kant because I do mm. think he in many ways that distinction does open up this void in which, in which it's the this, it's the distinguishing between reasons and causes which makes it possible that to then like reduce one category to the other yes. um, or render one reducible to the other and um, and I think that's why like why I mean for Branham Hegel is very important because again it's kind of the importance of have of giving and asking for reasons and of updating our concepts about things, the idea that like history is, history conditions our thought and understanding. And it's absolutely true that like in every rational conversation, there are like historical forces at play. Right. There are like, clearly, right. Yeah. yeah. There, there are like, you know, causal factors yes. interrupting and like conditioning the way in which we communicate about things and the ways in which we philosophize about things. And it would be, I think dogmatic to de to deny. Yes, it. I agree. But at the same time, there's a point. I mean, there's a difference between accepting that there are causal factors conditioning reason or conditioning language, and reducing reason wholly, completely, fundamentally yeah. to those causal factors, and and thereby reducing philosophy to a power struggle. Um, and I think now, like. Right now, I'm really interested in in trying to find ways to articulate this distinction between these two mm. things. So, I mean, one thing Brandom and Brassier talk about is the difference between Nietzsche and Marx and Freud, yes. for example. Yes. Because um, all three of them are willing to accept that there are causal factors, or for like power and and different kind of unreasonable forces conditioning the way we think about the world yet for Marx and Freud we're still capable of sort of gaining conceptual traction on those forces you know through different methods of interpretation you know historical materialism or psychoanalysis or whereas for Nietzsche there's a sense in which the that realm is not accessible to the intellect or to kind of conceptual configurations um, and the very desire you know the very desire to sort of 
understand or rationalize those forces is itself like a symptom of of weakness or sickness or right. yeah so um so i'm really interested in in like the problematic implications of that original kantian distinction but the ways in which it can be dealt with like um the ways in which we can sort of carry that enlightenment torch forward from a critical point of view you know that still accepts that reason's conditioned or caused um, to an extent, but that doesn't render reason impotent, you yeah. know, in the face of of power, um, and it doesn't render therefore our concepts and our ability to philosophize completely arbitrary and historically contingent. Um, so that's a problem that's kind of arose out of the thesis at the end that I'm pursuing now. Well, I, I think this is a fundamental question. It makes me very happy in the course of this discussion. We've got to something as important and also I think as, as fraught and difficult as this, like old Platonist getting to an aporia is a good thing. <laughs> so an aporia. Um, but uh, yeah, it, so just just to, to talk about some of the difficulties of the record, I, I, I really uh, share your assessment of this problem and I think you, you, you put it very well. Um, uh, this, how do you like Marx and Freud, right, and also like the sciences, move away from a sort of humanist dogma, right, of, of yeah, we're, we're all um, uh, rational agents unaffected by, I mean, if, to, to maintain that, you come up against so many things said in the <laughs> sciences, right, yeah, like, like this, but, but, but uh, it, it can seem like a reversion to the thing Spinoza polemicized against of, of human beings are not a kingdom within a kingdom, right? We, we need to make ourselves some sort of transcendent, like entities, we have this transcendent capacity that is unaffected by causes. And yet, um, yeah, the, the dangers of n not being able to call upon something that can transcend circumstance, power, etc., in order to critique it. But to, to show the ways in which this is fraught. I think it would be remiss of me if I didn't ask a sort of devil's advocate question on this, even though I'm not particularly sympathetic myself to this line. But hmm. I think we've both had the experience of, of maybe, maybe we've had it ourselves, but at the very least we've seen it in others, of people finding, say, an encounter with a very... Hmm, potted, superficial version of, I don't know, Foucault, incredibly emancipatory when, at least they, it felt as such, when they're in the midst of some sort of um, felt political oppression, that, right? Like, and you tell them, say, say within, I don't know, the context of feminism or whatever, and you say, aha, like, actually, this whole game of, of reasons and things like philosophy is all just epiphenomena of, of power in its productive form. Mm -hmm. And I think... People, often with very little previous um, exposure to philosophy, are just like, hell yes, as in that's true. That tracks with how yeah. I see the world and in particular the ways in which, um, you know, injustice is carried. And I suppose I want to ask you, given that we see this problem emerging out of that kind of thought, why do you think it is so compelling um, to, to, to the point that it may even have become sort of hegemonic, a kind mm -hmm. of orthodoxy and mm -hmm. soi disant left humanities or something. I think, hard question. I yeah, it yeah. is a hard question, but I do think, I mean, ultimately, 
going back and reading Foucault, like while I've been thinking about these things and trying to figure out where Foucault sits. Yeah. Um, Complicated. Yeah, yeah. Within within this uh, within this array of problems, um, one thing I've, that became really apparent to me is the ways in which. I guess, and and I'm someone that found Foucault incredibly sure. found Foucault incredibly compelling and emancipatory mm-hmm. in many ways, and I really have a lot of respect for yes. his work. But one thing I noticed reading him again, revisiting him, is the way in which he positions himself in his writing is, like we were saying, against. He positions himself as. Uh, demystifying or fighting against the position of the Enlightenment humanist yeah. who thinks that we all, yeah, have absolute freedom to kind of reason will save us, you know, and if we all just kind of use this supernatural faculty, <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, we'll, we'll be like, yeah. you know, we will free ourselves from the bounds of our own oppression. And you might get this from someone like Stephen Pinker today, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, I think if you position yourself uh, against that adversary, yeah. then of course it's going to be compelling to be like, yeah. that's bullshit. Yeah. Actually, you know, there are all these factors Absolutely. Yeah. at play. Like um, uh, there, there is power in the world. Like yeah. there are Clearly, yeah. unconscious forces at work. You yeah. Know, um, and there are things that pass for reason and universality that are yeah. not neither of those things, Absolutely. right? Yeah. And I think it's really important to recognize that, and I completely support Foucault in, in yeah. pointing that out. Yeah. But I also think he sets up a false dichotomy yes. or an unnecessary dichotomy in the sense that it has to be, you either have to, and again, it comes back to the. Kantian distinction, the revenge of Kant's distinction against itself. Like, if you set up this dichotomy between, well, either we're all free, rational agents, unaffected what by the causal realm in any way, or we are kind of completely wretched and, you know, <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, I'm gesturing... Um, completely caused and conditioned by yeah. these unconscious or unreasonable forces at play. If you set up that um, dichotomy, then you can't but like be on Foucault's side. But then I think, I guess, I think there's a third way in the sense that I don't think accepting that we are conditioned by forces that are somewhat unconscious or beyond the bounds of our like current ability to understand I don't think that accepting that means that you have to then also reduce um, the, our faculties of understanding and thought to those causes completely, mm. thereby rendering, rendering us incapable of gaining knowledge over time um, of how those forces operate. And I think Marx and Freud, and I also think a lot of post-structuralist feminists mm-hmm. have um, really brilliant methodologies for gaining knowledge of unreasonable or unconscious forces and how they condition our world that don't sort of uh, appeal to the idea that we're completely free rational agents, you know, that can know these things. Um, So, like, it's complicated and you have to get into the technical detail of of how to psychoanalyze the history of philosophy or how to, you know, point out uh, 
the ideology kind of of the political economists and and diagnose that but there are ways and means i think of um of figuring out a third way yeah so and i think then hegel comes in again and it's uh-huh. important to accept that yeah while thoughts historically conditioned it's not subordinate to this kind of unreasonable causal realm um so I don't know. Does that make sense? Like I think Foucault is compelling in the way that he positions himself, but I don't think he has to. I don't think it's necessary to position yourself in that way. I don't think there's only two options. It it does make sense. And on on the question of how you would see that third way, I mean, you've mentioned Sellers as well as Brassier, and you mentioned that Sellers attempts and this is seemingly part of what appeals to Brassier, that he attempts a sort of naturalized uh, normativity, if mm-hmm. I can use that. So if if we use the word normativity, um, uh, my uh, friend and interlocutor and occasional guest on this show, Mark Kelly of Fuconian, who's recently written a book called Against Normativity, is probably going to be listening to this with, with horror, but um, <laughs> um, but we can, we can, I will ask him about this, this very conversation when we speak at some stage. But... Um, uh, but uh, it, but a naturalized normativity, where normativity would mean, for our purposes, something like, well, well I, this is Salazi in terms, this, the space of reasons, mm-hmm. right? Um, but 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 a naturalization of the space of reasons, the realm of justification, of epistemology, and so forth. Um, the I think a naturalized normativity is one that says, well, this is not. A, um, ontologically, to come back to your thing, an autonomous realm, mm. right? In fact, it seems to me that Brassier, however much he may have uh, moved away from the from Nihil Unbound, I think still accepts a certain uh, uh, nihilism, understood in a very specific way, as a consequence of accepting uh, the discoveries of the natural sciences, that is still keen to say to render... Uh, systems of of human meaning, kind of uh, autonomous from the realm of causes, is a a kind of philosophical protectionism. I'm using Neil Unbound rhetoric <laughs> of, of philo- where philosophy starts to occupy this smaller and smaller space of human normativity and and so forth. That on the one hand, Brassier seems to me to go to starts to want to because he wants to reject that. Mm-hmm. There is no. Yeah, like always already of meaning and and so forth. No, we have to accept sort of scientific demolition of our place in the universe and the Copernican revolution and not find sneaky ways of bringing that back in, which seems to be about the predominance of the category of cause, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and yet, right? But this is where it gets very difficult. And yet we can give naturalistic, i.e., causal accounts, but this is really sounding like a kind of holy grail to me, of the space of reasons that does not that do not eliminate it. And I su- I suppose I'm thinking I'm sort of thinking out loud, so for, forgive me for this, but that this raises questions for me of of what I can imagine as a sort of critique, not that I know his work very well, of Brandon and Sellers that are sort of post-structuralist critique that would say, no, you you are just defending in this Kantian way, this this autonomous 
space, mm-hmm. it, ignoring the way that can be eroded by naturalistic accounts. And that raises the question, is that a, is that a, is that a good thing? Is that a necessary move? Or do we look to square the circle with a sort of n- this naturalized version of mm. normativity? Yeah. Oh. Doing you something very hard. Yeah, it's so, complicated. Yeah. I mean, gosh, there's a great essay by Sellers on, uh, I forget the title of it now, but I mean, Sellers famously distinguishes between the scientific image and the manifest yeah. image. And I think, uh, like, in many ways, Brazier is drawn to Sellers after Nihil Unbound because he did go in this kind of eliminativist yeah. kind of Yeah, kind of fuck the manifest image, yeah. right? Yeah. But um, Sorry, Ray, for the superficial yeah. <laughs> version of your, of your you know, his, his, his brilliant prose and the subtlety of his readings that I've kind yeah. of made that into a vulgar. <laughs> yeah, okay. Presumably he doesn't listen to this. But there's a sense in which... Uh, yeah, there's a sense in which I guess, like, yes, we can give naturalistic accounts and explanations of phenomena, but we can't give naturalistic justifications. Ah, that and seems crucial, yeah. I think that's the distinction, I guess, between being a, sci- a hardcore scientific naturalist and being, I don't know, like an an inferentialist. A Brandomian Salazian, yeah. yeah. Or being a Salazian. I, I, I can't speak for Branham because I, yeah. Yeah. I, um, but at least from a Salazian point of view, there's a big difference between giving a scientific explanation for something and giving a scientific justification. There is, it. right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's where the manifest image steps in and it's like, well, yes, science... What does he say? He says science comes first in the order of explanation yes but in the order of um, justification giving and asking for reasons for why we do certain things or yeah in the realm of normativity science basically can't really help us there that there's limitations around that which is why we must maintain the manifest image and I think one of the lines from that essay that's really powerful is the, he brings up the idea that if we didn't have the realm of reason and justification separate from the scientific realm or the scientific image, then there would be no reason for doing science in the first yeah. place. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it's kind of, I think really that sums up the point. It's like there's reasons why we do science. Um, and if we got rid of our self-conception and the space of of, of justification for why we do what we do as human beings, then there wouldn't even be an impetus to do science in the first place. So it doesn't, it kind of, yeah, points to the inconsistency maybe of a complete scientific or naturalist reductionism. But there was something. But, um, but then the other really interesting thing that I came out of a conversation I had with Ray more recently is that he's and one thing I really like about him is that he's kind of always constantly moving on and and doing Mm, things. Indeed. Um, Is that he's moving away from sellers now because the naturalistic kind of explanation isn't enough or the like the naturalistic uh, world view 
coupled with the space of reasons isn't enough because it doesn't account for and maybe this is something that the that your friend Mark and the kind of post-structuralist critics would would point out it doesn't account for the social realm yes so now so so now Brassi is really interested in in looking at Marx again and and Hegel yes. because um, we need to be able to account for for what's going on there as well and that Definitely. can't be given like we can give scientific explanations again but it, we can't give justifications and it's not enough to kind of really capture what's going on there so so I'm sympathetic to both sides yeah like the post-structuralist side and you know other ways of understanding the world um, but ultimately what I'm not sympathetic to is the idea that um, that reasons wholly reducible to uh, to naturalistic explanations, yeah. causal or, or I don't know, like uh, the will to power. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, it, 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 yeah, it, there are so many interesting questions around this. Like, it, it strikes me that on the one hand, one of one of the ways I can imagine doing the uh, making the Salazian move is to say, yeah, everything is subject to the kind of causal uh, relations that we can find described say scientifically yeah we don't need to make the space of reasons autonomous exactly but it's more that you're you're we're doing something different when we engage in justification even when we're doing science right like like that its legitimacy doesn't relate on causal power in fact if you do that we're going to slip into a, a particular kind of correlationism which would be a pragmatism right like you're just like the legitimacy of science is that it's efficacious in certain ways, technologically, yeah. and that that sort of un, would undo the grounds, the reason to appeal to science in order to get out of correlationism yeah. and so forth. But it also seems to turn, I think, okay, the, the space of reasons becomes more something like a heuristic, and this is where your distinction between ontology and epistemology comes, comes in, as mm -hmm. far as I can tell like going back to to Kant's right we're not saying that ontologically there's this protected area that nothing we know from the natural sciences but even from the human sciences right could ever um, uh, penetrate like like it's not this uh, monadic sealed off realm in an ontological sense yeah just it, but it is epistemologically it is insofar as when we're playing the game of justifications mm -hmm. and I don't mean to reduce it to a game but you don't you know what I mean when we're when we're talking about justification when I'm like really why do you think that is that true what is the evident what is your argument for X we have stopped talking about causes mm -hmm. because I could point out that maybe you know what made you say what you say was the result of some uh, convergence of social and physical forces and that may well be true but it's just not necessarily relevant to the question of justification no, or absolutely. to the extent that it could be relevant you could you would have to turn it into a justification right like yeah. where, where, where you said something like actually running insofar as you are i don't know um ragingly misogynistic or something like that that your your critique you know this has affected your argument and i can show why i can justify that causal 
element and how it's distorting your reasoning or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, yeah, which is precisely, I think, what Lisa Rigorai does when she right. reads the history of philosophy. <laughs> you know, I, and I've become more interested in her work again because of her methodology, um, which is to kind of psychoanalyze the philosophers and point out why yeah. they say what they say in the same way that I guess Freud would interpret. Right. Uh, you know, his patients' testimonies, or Marx would interpret the political economists of his day. And so... Um, this is maybe something that Sells and Brandon leave out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The kind of, like you said, the human sciences or the, the social causes at play. It's something that they can't really account to because account for because they rely too heavily on the kind of more naturalistic conceptions of science. Yeah as being the in the order of explanation, first in the order of explanation. Yeah. Um, and I'm, and because of that, I think the post-structuralist critique is legitimate insofar yes. as that's insufficient. Yes. To, <laughs> that's insufficient, ultimately. Yeah, there's lots of other causal elements, you know, apart from the physical or naturalistic ones that are um, influencing and conditioning our thoughts and our our debates but I really like what you said about even though you could give a causal explanation for a belief Mm. that someone holds for example you know I think capitalism is bad because my family are you know Trotskyists or something you could give that you could give that you could we could have a debate and I could say that and you could give that causal explanation, but then it's completely irrelevant to whether or not my belief is legitimate. It, that's right. Or justified. Yeah. You know, that depends on us having a completely, having a, a rational debate yeah. where in we give each other reasons and explanations and that's connected to a whole host of other concepts and, and factors in the world. Um, and you could establish that yeah. through that. You could you could establish that I have no other reason for my Marxism than Absolutely. than this family history or yeah. something. But you'd have to do work to justify the mere fact doesn't give you the legitimacy of your future no. argument in relation to that. Yeah. yeah, and the mere fact doesn't delegitimize that. That's true. Either. Yeah, like that's the important point. It's, yeah. it's irrelevant. So I guess that's. Yeah, that's the point, is you, you have both, and that's what Sellers says in some ways, you have this synoptic kind of vision, because yes, you can at the same time provide a causal explanation for something and a justification for it, but those realms are distinct from one another, not ontologically or metaphysically, no. <laughs> but um, yeah, in, I guess, the order of, of, I don't know, like in epistemological sense, yeah. Yeah, and and that Tracy from I mean when I think of arguments I think of arguments in say phenomenology like in the early Husserl saying um, about the on reasons and causes about the danger of say reducing uh, logic or mathematics to psychology right and yeah. if you do that you strip them of their norma- of their normativity right mm-hmm. um, you you just say oh logic is just the way we happen to associate. Um, ideas in our minds which doesn't give the force of if you're sort of I can't see any fault in your syllogism I should be there's a sense to which that argument should be compelling for me even even if it 
even if the content of your argument actually produces immense psychological distress. Like you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't, we couldn't explain how that could happen because my psychology would explain everything. Um, so, uh, but I do know that just, just to think of another line of argumentation that I know you wouldn't like, there are sort of, there's a sort of brand of, among other things, theological apologetics that takes that irreducibility of the sphere of reasons, uh, of the space of reasons, in the direction of, ergo, there must be something um, irreducible to naturalism. If it's irreducible to naturalism, conceived ontologically, it has to be capable of description in some other mode, through aesthetics or theology mm. or something like that. It seems to me you want to rule that out, and that your ontologization of epistemology succeeds, distinction succeeds in doing that. Mm. Yeah. Um, can I ask you, look, Emma, we've been talking for a long time. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Um, I, I do keep, but if I could ask a, a, a final question for you, albeit one, and I apologize for how late this has come in the, the discussion, I don't want to make it um, tokenistic, but something we haven't talked about, a, a field that I know you work in, um, is to do with uh, what's called, and I don't know a lot of about this, Xeno um, feminism. Can you tell me and our listeners a little about this and how it relates to your broader, the broader philosophical concerns that we've talked about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's always been an interesting question for me how the, my work as a Xeno feminist relates to my more like academic kind of scholarly philosophical work. And I've like, like kind of started off quite separate from one another, but, you know, I'm moving closer and closer Yeah, right, together. right. Um, but uh, for those who don't know about xenofeminism, it's a, it was a manifesto that emerged in 2015, I think, mm -hmm. by a group of um, xeno, like self-professed xenofeminists mm -hmm. who, uh, I mean, their identity is pretty well known now, it was anonymous at the time, but a collective made up of different um, philosophers, artists and computer scientists mm. sort of living in different parts of the world. Um, and they were responding to, I guess, movements like neo-rationalism and accelerationism and in some ways responding to reactionary critiques of these movements which postulated them as mar macho and right yeah and um saw them as kind of like misogynistic or right, masculinist right. right and so this group got together and and were like actually you know there's a long tradition of kind of feminist techno science and um and we don't see the kind of celebration of, of rationality and the emancipatory potential of, of technology as masculinist. We see it as feminist mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. as well. And so anyway, I'm, I mean, I was prior to encountering this work, this manifesto, I was always fascinated with the work of people like Donna Haraway and Shulamith Fires. Yes, yes. And when this, I guess, when this um, manifesto came out, it just kind of reconsolidated a lot of that interest and started drawing a line of connection between what's happening in the world now and a lot of that tradition, the importance of that tradition, which has been overlooked in lots of ways, I think. 
Um, so I don't know, the main tenets of it are, I guess, to reassociate feminism with Marxism and ideals of rational self-transparency and the emancipatory potential of technology um, and the internet. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a movement that I'm in full support of and one that's still largely undeveloped and, you know, I'm not sure exactly. There's lots of different kind of versions of it and forms of it within the collective itself. And, um, but it's, for me, fascinating and important as a kind of counterpoint to, again, to return back to the themes we've been discussing today, um, a counterpoint to a kind of post-structuralist feminist tradition which often um, isolates a kind of irreducible kernel to like sexed experience, lived experience as being the basis for kind of feminist movements and stuff and instead sort of doesn't see sex and gender as some kind of ineffable or mysterious experiential realm but rather some like something that can be technologically manipulated and talked about. Yes, <laughs> um, Con conceptually. Yeah, as well. reasoned yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I find it, yeah, that's what, that's the basis of my interest in it. Um, apart from that, what there's a lot of, there's a strong tradition of cyber feminism, which actually has its origins in Australian in Australia. Oh, really? I, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, from the early 90s. Okay. So there's a lot of people like Virginia Barrett, Francesca Doromini, Amy Ireland um, oh, I, I, in I Australia doing Ireland. important yeah. work yeah. around around this stuff. And I just went to a conference in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, the 4S conference, where we put on a couple of panels sort of um, promoting their work. And yeah, so that's something new and exciting that I'm really interested in. I think it I think it really like responds to a lot of problems again in post-structuralist feminist theory, like I said, in interesting ways. And and interesting uh I guess one of the most important elements of it for me is that it's a feminism that's open to queer and trans subjects in a yes. way that although I think arguments can be made that many like uh, French or post-structuralist feminists, when read in different ways, can be also open to those subjects oh, and those struggles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's always been a little bit of ambiguity around that and tension. So it's a form of feminism that's completely um, anti-naturalist, yes. non-essentialist, yes. and Marxist, and um, not techno-utopian, but techno open-minded <laughs> and for all of the above reasons it's, it's um, important to me and something that I will continue to sort of support in my work Would and explore. It, it does on the base of the discussion that we've just had that does seem a kind of natural outgrowth yeah. that you would be um, uh, the, apart from avoiding essentialism in relation to the questions of uh, trans struggles and queer struggles and so forth. There seems to me to be 
uh, that you, when you were talking about Erograde before and, and so forth, that on the one hand that you would acknowledge, um, you know, the, there being good reasons for a focus on lived experience and so forth within the history of feminist struggles, but on the other hand, yeah, maybe similarly to what we've been talking about, we can we can imagine this ending up as something that is the opposite of Shulamith Firestone, an association of women with well that can sound very much like Victorian sexism, right? Like which associates <laughs> them with the intuitive, the rational, the emotional, therefore possibly ecology against against science technology, etc., which is all sort of masculine and phallic and, and yeah. dominating and so forth. And that that to to bring up something that actually we um, a bit naughtily that we talked about prior to the recording of this discussion, like you were, were talking about the issue of what it what it means to deprive someone or a, a struggle or a movement with a tool, right? And and it seems to me that that yeah, one of the problems with such an a, a, a vision of femininity contra masculinity is is suddenly the space of science, technology, reason, the history of philosophy is kind of ceded to the patriarchy or something. And yeah, absolutely. Why would you want to do that? And devalorize. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, like, clear reasons why that occurred. Yeah. Um, like, there was strategic reasons why that occurred, too. It was an attempt to revalue the... the. It was a revaluation of values, I guess. In the yes. Nietzschean sense, it was an attempt to sort of fight back against misogynistic and patriarchal yes. categories that had been devalued and demoralized in lots of ways and associated essentially with women. An attempt to sort of um, see those things as positive and important parts of human existence, yeah, essential parts of human are, existence, yeah. which they surely are. Yeah. But yeah, as you, as you pointed out, the danger of that is that you do deprive yourself of, of power and strategy and, and the tools of, of reason, of, of scientific um, research and, and technological innovation if you, if you, in a reactionary sense, associate essentially all of those things with with the patriarchy and with misogyny with um men yeah. yeah so i i think what i like about xenofeminism is the refusal to essentialize any kind of um philosophical methodologies um forms of reasoning uh forms of modes of using technology, none of these things can be essentially associated with the masculine or the feminine. These yeah. categories kind of become irrelevant in some ways. And yeah. At the same time, it's important to maintain the category of feminism and like mm -hmm. has a lot of really complex debates around how to do that. I think Catherine Malibu's work is, ah. is good at addressing some of those ideas because <coughs> in many ways she's yeah at the end of working at the end of a lot of those traditions that's true reflecting yeah. on them. um do you, do you mean her her work on on changing difference or the, yeah yeah right, yeah, right, 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 right yeah yeah um so i forgot what i was saying to sum up <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about 
So, yeah, I mean, I think rearming yes. feminism, Yes. I guess, like rearming feminism with, uh, with reason and technology uh, and, yeah, I'm tired now. Um, it's okay. That's what's, to me, like, compelling and interesting and and exciting about this new kind of manifestation of of feminist struggle. Yeah. I'm excited to see what ha what comes out of it. Y yes, it, it, yes, it, it, it will be it will be exceptionally interesting, and I I I, I think yeah, there's a, an argument that this might be necessary, and that it doesn't involve a complete rejection of or break with the past, because as you say, there are you know, you can see reasons that previous feminist struggles went in directions other than this, and also um, that, you know, maybe it can still be that, a, say, I don't know, a, an enterprise or an institution or even a, a discourse might be contingently sexist or, yeah, uh, with a masculine bias or misogynistic, but, but it's the refusal to, sorry, it's seeing things as essentially so that absolutely. it's disarming. Making right? that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the point of continuity between, I think, like, for example, the post-structuralist tradition and xenofeminism. The point of continuity is that obviously, like, we have to accept that the history of the history of um, science and technology and is, philosophy, and, and and philosophy yeah, yeah. Yeah. is completely misogynistic and patriarchal in many ways but there's a big difference between associating those things to core with essentially with masculinity and 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 seeing them as contingently connected or related to one another and um, sort of I guess if you see it in the latter sense, I think this goes back to like distinctions between ontology and epistemology again. If you see it in the latter sense, then it's possible to repurpose um, all of those tools and strategies and take them up. And, and that's really important, I think, and, and really admirable philosophically and politically. Yeah. Emma, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing with me the results of this doubtless uh, almost complete ruination that philosophy <laughs> has uh, has um, led uh, to in relation to you. Lord, I am incapable of speech as well um, at this stage, but I think this has been a, a really wonderful discussion. Uh, um, it's been a long time uh, setting this up, but I couldn't think of a a better conversation to begin the second season of this podcast. I'm really honoured and delighted that you, you shared so many insights with me. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Brian. No problem. <laughs>